Welcome to Miniatures Monthly, episode 19. My name is Chris Thurston, and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Welcome Ooh. to October. October, is it though? Yes. Okay. Well, when this goes up, it'll still be October. What I mean is that um, uh, opinions have been divided in the, the land of shouting at Games Workshop, <laughs> whether or not the slate of offerings thus far delivered qualifies as October or more like an Orc Knight. Um, I see. Mm. So people wanted a full range of orcs on foot and they've received uh, a, a range of amazing orcs in cars. Indeed. I think um, as uh, I feel like sometimes that uh, we're getting straight into the news, I guess, but like, I feel like sometimes uh, Games Workshop is, is, is getting used to like how to use, how to best use their new kind of talking mm-hmm. about stuff and talking social to the reach. community, social reach. Mm-hmm. The fact that they, they have built a much more positive rapport with the community than they used to. Uh, sometimes leads them to sort of say like it's happening everybody but it's sort of not to the mm. extent that people's imaginations are capable of carrying them yes um and uh, i i suspect that october which if you're not aware is the the promised kind of renaissance for big green men in warhammer 40,000, may be the new buggies and a codex and that's good the yeah. buggies are very nice they're really cool um but i think people were expecting literally the entire range to get a yeah, refresh because yeah. it had been so long in the works that they've had their time to get expectations all the way to the top some of the oldest uh, sort of plastic 40k miniatures that you could buy apart from maybe like eldar guardians or something but even then i think that the, the old orc models are older yeah uh, so yeah this reminds me a little bit of my importance i was about to say that yeah it's, it's that same thing of like really good job of hyping it up and getting people excited and then perhaps you know you could sometimes it's good to temper expectations a little bit so that people could enjoy the actual products that are going out uh, and those and the new orc bogies are really cool they're really, great and really funny just an awesome sense of humor there are uh, they've got like cannons that fire squigs and some of them are manned by squigs <laughs> <laughs> looking into sights and shooting their own why are they allowed to drive <laughs> uh all that stuff is great and i love the mad max vibe and mm. uh but it's, it's sort of 40k mad max where the cars are just kind of 50s drags dragsters and yeah. just like you know crazy rocket cars and that kind of stuff it's gonna be so colorful i can't wait to see what people do to convert them and turn them into you know sort of specialist themed armies and that kind of thing yeah oh yeah it's, it's, all, it's, it's, all, it's all it is genuinely all rad stuff hmm. um it's just that um it's been I, I was kind of amused by how deep into october we have gotten hmm. With, hmm. in order for the arrival of orcs to occur <laughs> It's true, and it feels as though they don't have like many models to be revealed for the rest of October. So you're right, it, we're halfway through. So it's like half an October, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. It's interesting because I mean, like, it feels like the rate of new stuff is now so high hmm. that it's quite difficult to do news on our monthly podcast. <laughs> it was always sort of difficult. Like we'd yeah. always try and be playing catch up, but like. When we last did a podcast in mid-September, X-Wing 2.0 had just come out mm. and a lot of stuff was on the horizon. In the time since, there has been and will be like a whole slate of expansions for Kill Team, like loads of them, yeah. including the kind of- Got the, the rate of output for Kill Team. Is yeah. Insane. Which one of the things that's taken over the first part of October is mm. the Commander's expansion, which is coming, loads of new box sets for it. Um, there has been Night Vault. Shades by season two, mm. uh, which we'll get to talking about. That's come out. Not only that, that was immediately followed by its first round of expansions. So yeah. there are now four new warbands and a new card expansion and loads mm. of new stuff. And it's definitely sort of like 
arriving so quickly now that it's kind of impossible to keep and this is just within the game workshop part of the hobby as well like kind of impossible to keep yeah, track of that's really true and here's an interesting bit of news so in the last couple of years games workshops shares have increased by 660 percent in value yeah and they're they are like by some metrics the fastest growing british company <laughs> i mean i love this you know <laughs> not because i not just because I, I like the hobby and i'm excited to see what they can do with more resources but because you know like this isn't necessarily the narrative of the rich economy <laughs> and i love the like what are our homegrown industries tom what where is our manufacturing where is our production in this country mm. well it's warhammer isn't it it's one place in nottingham <laughs> yeah, exactly a big old series of buildings on top of you know a plastic mold factory <laughs> exactly um and i mean Maybe it's a reflection on the uh, British economy's wider failures in manufacturing and inability to, you know, outstrip a company that makes tiny plastic men. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's also about a very specific generation of uh, people coming back uh, to the hobby, uh, entering mm. a certain phase of their life where they have the freedom and time and money to reinvest and GW being there to catch them. I would go deeper than that. I think the broader economic struggles of the country, <laughs> which is a great topic to get into at the top of this yeah, monthly, yeah, yeah. have probably benefited games in a lot of different ways. So a kind of escapist uh, well, impulse. Maybe. So I'll put it this way, right? Mm. We're men on our early 30s, yes. right? Um, how long do you think it will take in your life before you can afford either of these things? <laughs> a home that you own uh, or yeah. children? Well, quite. You're probably not going to get either of those things, Tom. But I can and you're have, never going to retire. But you can. I can have, have a land dragon. dragon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I have. I've got my own plastic children. Exactly. <laughs> my inside. thousand plastic sons. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's um, you know, it's stepping in to fill a gap, a generational gap. I think mm. as um, as millennials become thirty year old people with disposable income. <laughs> but I, I do think there is um, a rise in sort of. Uh, local physical social activities that mm. don't revolve around just booze or being in a cinema or whatever. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, uh, board games are having a resurgence, obviously pen and paper role playing is having a resurgence. Yeah. And, um, war games are, seem to be enjoying that as well. It's just an interesting shift back from, uh, you know, where people are so in- involved in the internet and, you know, their online lives, you get to mm. pull back and just have a nice experience in your garage or in your front. Yeah, I think there's a genuine hunger for things that you own. Mm. I genuinely think that's probably benefit uh, games workshop, right? Well. You know, like mm. you tend to rent most of the things that you enjoy day to day, whether that's TV or whether it's your phone or mm. whether it's, you know, probably the vast majority of, of things you do for entertainment. Collecting stuff is a pretty deeply set kind of, you know, itch to scratch. Mm. And I think that wargaming and hobby stuff scratches that. Yeah. as well like yeah. i've been asked a couple of times in different contexts um why because if people aren't aware like i do a lot of consultancy and things and for example in things like esports where like um companies are interested in investing some money into this new thing <laughs> mm. and now some of that attention it's been interesting to watch is shifting towards tabletop it is almost the, the new thing um because i say new but obviously you know kind of drawing attention from companies that it certainly wouldn't have done a couple of years ago yeah sure <clears throat> and that's because you know there's uh and you know it's where attention is shifting and, and people want to know why that can't necessarily explain it mm. and it's why you end up with these amazing um articles and like the business part of the guardian for example trying to explain why like warhammer is the only <laughs> successful thing on the british high street <laughs> like <laughs> people want to order food from someone who rides a bike up a hill mm. but they will go out to buy a space marine yeah like it's uh yeah it's baffling paradox, but it? kind of kind of wonderful like <laughs> it would be it'd be kind of sweet and wonderful if it wasn't against the backdrop of kind of like a a sort of much scarier malaise. malaise. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
but nonetheless good for GW, I suppose. And, yeah, uh, but actually it's worth stressing, everybody's doing well out of this. Like mm. I suspect one of the reasons that there's been this sort of great reclaiming of licenses, like Games Workshop at one point shared the Warhammer license with Fantasy Flight, who made card games like Warhammer Conquest. Um, you know, similarly, Wizards of the Coast shared some of its properties with Fantasy Flight. It seemed like a lot of companies shared their stuff with Fantasy Flight, basically. Mm. But all of those licenses have been kind of withdrawn from Netrunner to Warhammer. And I suspect one of the reasons for that is a couple of years ago, all of those con- companies kind of had to work together because the entire industry was struggling. Mm. And now they're all doing well. D&D yeah. is doing amazingly well. Obviously, Fantasy Flight has X-Wing and Game of Thrones card game and all of this stuff. Is, they have, I mean, Fantasy Flight is the best license- licenses in the world. Yeah. And Games Workshop is doing spectacularly well. So sort of all around the, you know, in the US and in the UK and in Europe more broadly, these companies are doing better and better and kind of like shoring up kind of their own stockades in a way that wasn't necessary or advisable a couple of years ago. It does seem that there was a lag in some of these companies' ability to take advantage of the internet. Uh, And what we've seen, particularly with D&D, is... Uh, the, the internet driving huge amounts of demand through podcasts like is a big part of D&D's resurgence surely yeah. because so many kind of great comedy podcasts like Taz and loads of others have, have come mm-hmm. up and and encourage people to start trying that and uh, like D&D I don't like don't think they would they set out to make that happen no uh, but through serendipity that has made it cool again made it fun again for yeah. an entire new generation of people um whereas gw have had to kind of go out and do that themselves and they've only they only started doing that like three years ago and so yeah. it, it, they have to be applauded for actually getting out there on into the onto the internet creating the warham community creating uh the community site twitch stream all the mm. stuff that it's very hard to just go into that cold and they've tried really hard and it has paid off it seems like yeah and also they're just making so much stuff it's just, as you say, we can't keep up with it. Yeah. But, but each little bit seems to be finding its audience somewhere. Mm. I think one of the most um, successful packages they've put together is Kill Team, actually. Um, yeah. Um, I, I've not dipped into Kill, Kill Team yet, but I look at those boxes and I think, wow, that's... I could it's, just pay 30 quid and have just loads of hobby pleasure out of that and take it down to the local GW store, play a game for 90 minutes... Like it just seems really flexible. It seems like one of the they've, they've hit a real sweet spot with that with, with that package. It feels like they took him a few goes. Mm. Like I, I think Necromunda has been successful, um, yeah. but is a bit more niche in some ways. Um, and <laughs> obviously, I think Shadow War, as we said in the podcast before, was sort of like <laughs> sent out to die. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Kill Team, I think, has really nailed it. Mm. And I think that's like you know, I think uh, it's I think you know I, I'm fascinated by October because I, I really like. Um, probably the biggest hobby gap for me is I don't give a fuck about orcs at mm. all. Like from games, Workshop. I like goblins, yeah. which we'll get to, but mm. like, I like, um, but orcs themselves, I've never really hugely cared about. Like, they're, you know, they're sort of like, I don't like find the joke of orcs hilarious. So there's like a limited degree to which I usually care. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I find chaos space marines funnier for some reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, so October was never like a big deal for me, but mm. I think it's really fascinating in terms of it's sort of, um, if you're not aware, then that there has been a lot of a lot of very public moaning about it this right. month already on on social media because mm. people really did take those promises very seriously, and I think, but I think it stems from a kind of a belief that um, in a sort of old model of doing these sort of massive army updates that then sort of like uh, you know it is it for a while rather than what seems to be happening, which is because simply more stuff is happening. There's sort of like a trickle of things, like mm. stuff kind of creeps in to the game from from different angles and um you know you can't just expect sort of uh games workshop specifically anymore to simply be doing one thing at a time mm. so you know this month has been night vault and kill team as much if if not more than 
October, which is sort of coming because mm. of Speed Freaks and, and the other stuff that's happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think maybe it'll take people a while to adjust to, from one mode of sort of like massive updates that are then it for five years to a kind of steadier stream of stuff. Mm. sort of evenly more evenly spread across multiple game systems and things like that it seems as though Killtube has been more supported by the physical stores than so shades by for example seems to be a purely yeah. online property at this point it uh, is yeah and but nightfall isn't but yes okay so that makes sense so second editions they'll probably stock the boxes for that i suspect it'll be um so from what i understand of from talking to people who work in games retail with with games like this that aren't the big two so aos and 40k yeah there's a desire to kind of stock them for a while so uh, Lord of the Rings will be in stores probably just through Christmas mm. and out the other side, but probably not post-Christmas because they'll probably do quite well at Christmas. Uh, similarly, Night Vault will probably be around until like, early next year and then it'll vanish from stores again. And so like the first half of the Night Vault expansions will probably be brought out yeah. in the stores okay. and then the second yeah. half will be mail order. Oh, that's cool. But it sounds as though um, uh, from your experiences with our local GW, Chris, that um, Kill Team has been particularly well supported in terms mm. of just... Games in store, they've had terrain set up for it and stuff. Yeah, there's, there's terrain, there's a campaign, which I've been playing in. Um, and it's, it's, and it's, it's really good because I've, you know, um, after, you know, I, maybe, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any news we should get to, but maybe there is, but like broadly speaking, like I've had quite a busy hobby month, hmm. but in quite an eclectic way. Like normally I would think of a busy month as being like, uh, painting some stuff and then playing like one big game against you, for hmm. example. Whereas, this month I have played X-Wing, I've played AOS, I've played a bunch of Night Vault, I've played a lot of Kill Team. Mm-hmm. And that's like a lot more individual things than I think I've done in, in any month that we've been doing this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I think for that reason, uh, at the top of the order, it's worth saying this is probably going to be a slightly different structure to how we've done the podcast for at least the last year. Mm. Because you and I have played all of those things apart from Kill Team. Yeah, And so like it sort of really makes sense to do like one big battle report. It's more like talking through... A much more kind of like, yeah, like eclectic month. And similarly, now I have like a backpack that's basically just my hobby bag. Mm. And because I, you know, sometimes if, if work allows, I, because I work for myself, I can kind of get out in the afternoon, go down to the store Mm. and play something. And that bag has enough stuff in it to play Shades, sorry, Night Vault or Kill Team. And you can almost always get a game of one of those things. And that's a really nice position to be in. Yeah. It's one bag with just a few models in it and be able to play a bunch of different things. Yeah. That's the really appealing thing about, um, kill team to me is is that and also i speak to people who are otherwise not interested in gw as a hobby yeah that are tempted by kill team because it's like six models and a lot of them are quite easy to paint actually like it mm. gets an across together you can get some space moves together like there are quick quick ways of doing those armies yeah and also just the three by three play surface so it, it is three by three, right? It, well, it adapts really well to like different okay. sizes, but it's, yeah. it's probably no big. It's about two and a half by two and a half, really. Yeah. Like but, it's small. But there was some like vertical terrain. Yeah. Hopefully, um, that will kind of push the battlefield upwards a little bit. And that is like a manageable thing. And we, I think we've both struggled with the fact that six by four in British homes is, yeah. is not an easy surface to necessarily find unless you've got a garage and like, you know, a load of space yeah like a big table. it took me getting an expanding ikea table but that even wasn't wide enough and mm. then a rigid board that could overlap hang the edges yes and yes. now we can do it but it's yeah you're right it's a it's, it's a pain in the ass it's a pain in the ass and it's a lot of people just straight up can't do it like in my flat there's no way um no experiment with like a folding board but again it's just a whole table into itself and it's it's, it's just hard to source that stuff whereas kill team great you know like i could play that on my tabletop i was playing um we'll get, get onto this but i was playing some battlefleet gothic 
man, I love that game. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and again, that just, it, it was crazy to adapt that game because it's all in centimeters and, uh, it's like, it happens in a manageable play space. It's, it's a very chaotic game, uh, but it, 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 you can do it on, we could do it on our kitchen table in our mm. flat. And I do think like, as the models get bigger for yeah. GW's or 32, what is it, 28 mils? 28 mils, technically. It, is, it feels more like, you know, a yeah. different scale entirely. As the models get bigger, the play spaces have to almost feel, you know, they have to be bigger in order yeah. to sustain them. And I, I wonder if they might want to look at that <laughs> and look at the size of their models and the play spaces that people actually have available in their homes. I do wonder if this was one of the, and it goes back a long way, but one of the considerations when designing age of sigma hmm. was age of sigma scales down far better than that, fantasy battle that's did. really true yeah. like obviously skirmish isn't great like if you compare skirmish to kill team like kill team is so much more robust hmm. as a game than than skirmish is but skirmish demonstrates that it is possible to play something resembling age of sigma with a handful of models absolutely and it absolutely wasn't the case for fantasy battle no that's really true and so i wonder if they were aware of that but it's expressing itself through that necessarily hmm. and through the furnishing of these other kind of uh, low model count kind of yeah your path to glory sort of like yeah smaller battles yeah um but yeah it's, it's been interesting to play a mix of uh different scale battles and yeah it's weird especially playing gothic um that game feels huge like mm. it feels vast like you've got huge ships and loads yeah. of ships. well let's i mean let's get into it now there's no reason to yeah that's to wait. Like, I think so, done the news like week. battlefield gothic is what like 15 16 years old at this point it's gotta be right yeah yeah uh, um and this is a uh, fleet combat game and it's kind of so it's about spaceships and it's a heresy era spaceship combat game um but the ships don't behave like spaceships they behave like boats right so it's all about you know the spec for your ships you've got firing arcs out to the side so it's all about you know getting lining up broadsides you've got lances that are kind of longer range that you tend to have on your prow there are ramming moves um when you hit ships uh you you know strip their shields and that creates explosion effects and the explosions are little tokens that sit on the base of the models right. and you quickly get this sense of um very physical things happening to these ships and you know uh, actual kind of explosive clouds that they're moving through and that are kind of uh jeopardizing their ability to shoot and their ability to regenerate their shields because mm. uh, if once you've moved off those blast markers your shields regenerate again so it's kind of a, there's all this flack on a battlefield that you're dealing with all the time. And uh, a lot of these ships can put out ordnance, which is, you know, fighters, bombers, uh, boarding craft and torpedoes. And these little, tiny little tokens are just flying across the board and you can maneuver them where, apart from tor- torpedoes have to go straight, but you can maneuver the fighters wherever they want to go. And, uh, it creates a kind of space melee mm. that is really intense and really kind of, gritty and kind of close and violent and uh it creates a, it's an awesome sense of a fight uh and it looks incredible on the tabletop as well so i was playing with um a chaos fleet which is one of the two release fleets that came <clears throat> out with battlefleet gothic for, way back in the day and it's actually a uh, fienia from discord's fleet oh wow that um uh chimp bought off him and then huh. stripped and painted up so there's a whole kind of circle of kind of awesome minis monthly, minis life monthly yeah. uh help here so uh, i went to discord and like i took some photographs and went to discord and sort of like um sent a message to fee saying hey i'm playing with your fleet and uh it was it was extremely nice so please join our discord because it's lovely um and yes and uh chimp was running his tyranid fleet and the tyranid models that gw released were pretty bad like they were just weird squid things just like <laughs> dumb squid things and this one is converted out of uh kind of 
Tyranid Warrior weapons and stuff oh, like that. Oh, cool. So, um, Tyranid Warriors, you could fill them with like, um, the kind of underslung, double barrel, clawed, kind of horrible mm. weapons. And that's been converted to be like the prows of these ships. Oh, neat. Yeah. And they, they look, they look great. They're really menacing. And, um, and they, because they're Tyranids, they just spaff out ordnance all the time they're just like constant they don't have to reload ordnance so the idea is that when you when you launch fighters and stuff uh as soon as they've done their job you need to reload them which is basically them flying back to your ship refueling and they go back out for another run right Tyrions don't care about that Tyrions just like spaffing out spore kind of weird spore cloud things that just go and try and eat ships yeah and um there's this amazing war of attrition in the middle of the board where uh my two like my capital class battleship which is an old metal model that's super heavy and looks incredible and it's massive and it was just pouring out fighters into the middle of the battlefield and all the fighters job was all they had to do was just neutralize these endless spaffing. horrendous spaffing of the <laughs> tyranny capital ships and i just about won that attrition war and just managed to neutralize all of that stuff and um, then my gunships got in really close and um even though they started crashing into each other and, and blowing up they they managed to get like enough volleys onto stuff to turn them into drifting hulks and uh you get this amazing sense of just like these titanic ships just like on on fire drifting past each other completely gutted completely uh crippled that crippled is actually a status in the game where mm. if your ship goes down below half health it, you know they can only shoot half as well they can only move half as well and um stuff cannot go critical and go nova it's, it's all about just the mind's eye image of what a space battle an awesome badass space battle in the four, four, in Warhammer thirty thousand would look like, mm. and it it kind of hold, for, from that perspective it really holds up, um, but it's a very fiddly and old school GW game at the same time. <clears throat> so this particularly uh, becomes apparent when you start looking at damage charts and how many dice you actually need to roll right. to actually do some damage. So when you're firing out the side of uh, a chaos gunboat. Uh, they've got like a, a firing value of 10 and there is a very complicated chart about what 10 may <laughs> or may not mean depending on the given situation so you look at the enemy you're firing at are they moving parallel to you are they moving towards you are they moving away from you and then you start shifting on this chart left or right across the odds <laughs> to see how many dice you end up rolling uh, is there stuff in the way are, you, are there blast markers nearby that there's just uh so many like so many like incremental little tweaks that you have to make to this thing mm. then eventually like five six minutes later you agree with your opponent okay so i i shift two right here because of this i shift two back because of blast markers i shift you know one to the left because they're moving away from me <laughs> and then finally your 10 means you roll two dice then you roll two dice and they miss because you only got two dice <laughs> <laughs> and it, the whole game is like that like the whole mm. game is about like really gritty dice mechanics and it, it's a the whole game is a great example of what gw have always been good at which is creating a mind's eye sense of what's going on in the battlefield mm. and some of the stuff they've actually fixed with stuff like aos where complicated dice tables are boring yeah um yeah. so at some point the simulation is not worth it like you don't need to simulate to that extent what's happening like to, to create you can still have the blast markers you can still have the ordnance on the table all the stuff on the tabletop is really awesome because it actually you can see this space battle frozen in time going left and right down odds charts down the odds axis of where the odds should be to do this shot is not good and that's just a simple matter of evolution of game design not only mm. within gw but more generally like even in pen and paper and stuff like that yeah where um even D D is like moved 
more and more away from really gritty kind of like comparative results comparative like, results stuff yeah and just like away from roles like fewer roles but more important roles yeah and and that's what aos seems to what a big part of the aos mission seems to be like yeah there aren't charts anymore uh the weapon profile is is what matters mm. and that can be modified of course but ultimately is is best than having a grid that you're yeah. going back and forth and negotiating. I suppose the middle ground is something like the strength toughness system in, in 40k 8th edition and mm. kill team where it's yeah. pretty straightforward. Like there are three different things it can be. Basically. Sure. There are and, thresholds and yeah. you can immediately see, look, that's double. So this happens. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, uh, it's, it's a fascinating game. I do love it. Uh, I, there are aspects of it that don't make much sense. So the chaos ships all are all kind of bespoke kind of angular, the, the designs mm. are really, really cool, but it's supposed to be heresy era. And in the heresy era, like, Kels didn't build their own ships. They were just Imperial ships that, that went wrong, yeah. right? <laughs> was Battlefield Gothic always heresy era? I think it, I think it was, yeah. I don't remember it being that, but that might be because I, I was pretty young when it came out and I don't remember, but. <laughs> maybe not, but it's weird. I just thought it wasn't, but maybe I could, I genuinely don't know. Genuinely don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe not. Hmm. Hmm. Because if it was heresy era, they would all just be imperial ships. And there wouldn't be Tyranids. And there wouldn't be Tyranids necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah, because the Tyranids didn't turn up until way later. I think, I think there is. Maybe it's 40k era. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Oh well. That makes sense then. Yeah. The Chaos ships are awesome. It's it's kind of initially balanced uh, to be Imperials versus Chaos. Mm. And some of the factions that came later were not balanced at all. So the Eldar were just insane apparently. Uh, the, the design of the other was rad. You'd have to pick, uh, the direction of the sun on the battlefield. And if the Eldar were side on to the sun, their solar uh, sails would be powered up so they'd be able to move faster, which is such a cool game mechanic. Yeah. That's such a cool game mechanic. It, it basically fully like digs into the, th- these are boats. These <laughs> exactly, are boats, yeah. everybody. Yeah. This is the wind. This is the wind. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> these have sails. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's stuff like you've got, um, planets and, things like that and if it's a planet if you finish a move within 15 centimeters of a planet you can take an extra turn inwards to it because right. you're riding the gravity well of the planet which can give your battleships extra maneuverability by slingshotting them around that actually happens to one of the horus heresy books isn't it oh, it's so good yeah. and it's like, but oh, i love that shit so much that's mm. so good. and the, the models mm. are awesome as well the models are so so cool yeah uh, and the, the idea is that the models aren't as big as you know they're not one-to-one representations. That is that the size of the ship is actually, uh, so you know how they all balance on, uh, just little sticks. Yeah. So the bottom point of the stick is how big the ship's actually supposed to be. Huh. Okay. So they're like holographic projections. Yeah. They're yeah. just kind of like, yeah, blow ups of, of those little points on the battlefield. And that carries through to movement and stuff like that. So when you're ramming and stuff, you need to do extra rolls because you need to actually angle into the ship. It's, it's not enough to just simply bump into them because these aren't physical representations of the size of the, the battle. Right. I see. Yeah. Uh, so, but it creates again, the sense of scale and the sense of just awesome, mm. massive conflict. And it, it is fiddly, but very fun. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. How easy is it to get hold of these days? Very, very difficult. Okay. <laughs> very difficult to get hold of. Uh, you need to find someone to sell it to you, like a, a mate, uh, someone on <laughs> Crank Grubber Discord. Um, you can buy individual ships there, they're floating around out there. It just wasn't printed that much. And yeah. a lot of it used to be metal. And I think the battleships just are all metal, the really mm. big ones. Um, and they had some nice plastic kind of ordinary, um, kind of cruisers and things. 
But yeah, I think you're probably looking at between like seven or 10 quid on eBay for one ship in some cases. Right. Like it's properly expensive stuff to get into. Uh, but it's a cool throwback to an era where like their games were very, very good at telling detailed stories. I think they still are. But there's, I don't know, something so evocative about it. Yeah. Things are very much part of like the era when we were teenagers as well, right? So mm. it's sort of there's a nostalgia aspect there. Yeah, well. yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, it's weird because we played X-Wing 2 and like, they're mm. utterly different games, but it's also simulating a similar-ish fantasy. You know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's... I still struggle to get like a mind's eye impression of what's happening in X-Wing sometimes. Mm. Even yeah. though the model's are rad and like um, I love the rules. Whereas if I want like a story game, something like BFG is pretty nice. Yeah, I think also the the scale helps a little bit with that. Yeah, that's you, true. You're kind of imagining sort of the vast conflicts on board these ships, even though it's only yeah happening in your kind of in a couple of dice rolls. Yeah, that's really true. <clears throat> uh, have you ever played? Is it Armada? Yeah, which I was going to suggest we should play some Armada. Yeah, it's very good. It sounds like a good, not a nice sort of in between point between those. Two yeah, it is. Well, yeah, I mean, it is literally bat- designed to be Star Wars Battle for Gothic, really. Yeah, so yeah, that sounds awesome. You want, to, you want to get a Super Star Destroyer in there? They, they, they announced that model this year. Really? It's huge. Oh, Cause it's uh, like the, the sort of Star Destroyer scale is, is kind of the, the scale the game operates at. Like mm. a big Star Destroyer is as big as something gets in Armada. Yeah. And a Super Star Destroyer is about 19 times longer than a Star Destroyer. Oh wow. Shit. So like. Of course it is. Yeah. 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 So it's like, a, it's a bit like the, when they released Epic for X-Wing and they added like the, uh, Corellian Corvette blockade runner and stuff. And that mm. thing is like, you know, 20 times longer than an X-Wing. Like it's huge. I've got the model somewhere. Like it's, it's massive. Um, so yeah, they, they announced it and they, they announced it with a dude just holding up this kind of like <laughs> real life spearhead sized, um, plastic super side destroyer, which costs 150 quid. Oh or something. my God. It's crazy. Yeah. That's like crazy. Yeah. It's good. Um, yeah, we, we played a little bit of X-Wing 2.0. We did. Um, probably not enough to deliver. Well, we were thinking about doing a pod, but it, it takes more than one or two games to deliver big big takes on it yeah. i'm interested to see what you made of it tom because obviously it was your first uh, it's a game i have such a story a history with that it's hard for me to pass well i mean i i, lo- I loved it as much as i loved the first x-wing really yeah um the only difference is that when i got into x-wing the meta was on, off on its merry way and i felt like i was never gonna sort of catch up with it yeah but it was more the um the sort of circumstances around the game that prevented me from getting into x-wing mm. than it was anything else uh, I do like a lot of the sort of cleanup work that's been done with the second edition. So just to be like token management and stuff like that, seeing what, who has target locks on what, uh, I like just the way the new cards are designed. So the upgrades just, you can slot them under your cards and read them quite easily. Yeah. Just like really basic things like that are some of the stuff that I can appreciate as just a new player, really. Mm. Um, I really, I think the force stuff is like, that's that's the bit that's like that's probably the sticking point at the moment because mm. it doesn't seem to interact with other systems enormously. Mm. So it, it kind of does, right? So you're so let, let, remind me like how it works. Like, so a force sensitive pilot has like an additional resource that other pilots don't have. Yes, uh, which is usually a regenerating pool of force points. Yeah, and force points can be spent to either activate special abilities, mm. uh, which are the specific to the pilot, or to force specific upgrades. Or they can be spent like focus tokens. So if you're not familiar, the way that X-Wing's dice system works is uh, you have attack dice and you have defense dice. And both of those dice have success symbols on them of varying kinds. Blank 
surfaces, which mean nothing happens, which are bad, and uh, focus symbols, which are like eyes, basically. Yeah. And uh, traditional kind of core to X-Wing as a game is if you can move effect, if you can maneuver effectively that you uh, can take a focus action, focus action gives you a token that you can spend during one of your dice rolls to flip all of your focus results into successes. Right. So this is super basic why X-Wing is a good game. Like uh, the other actions you might do instead of a focus, uh, when the game is sort of operating at its basic level, could be like uh, repositioning actions like barrel rolls and boosts. Yeah. Obviously doing that has a, unless you could have ways of chaining the, up, uh, chaining the actions together has a detrimental effect on your dice chances. Mm. Because like, let's say, um, this is very, very basic dice maths, but basically if you have a focus token, your chances of getting a hit on an attack dice are about 66%. Without one, it's 50%. Mm. So this is what X-Wing is. It's a game of like anticipating positioning and, and this interesting spaceship maneuvers. Um, coupled with this efficiency game where you try and maximize the chances that your dice rolls will be successful yeah. by positioning, which is why it's a dogfighting game. That's why it's good. Uh, a force token can be spent to change one focus result into a success rather than all of them. Yeah. So if you roll, if you fire, if you roll three attack dice and you get three focuses, force can only be used to change one of them. Mm. Um, so that's the basic thing it does. But what this means is that in X-Wing, you traditionally call this having mods, having modification for your dice. And so a force user kind of always has some modification, although at a level that hasn't previously existed in the game. Yeah. Where it's like less than a good, less than a full focus, but more than nothing. Yeah. Which can be still very powerful. Like if you're rolling only one green dice for a defense, for example, then having a force token is as good as anything else you're because right. it's, it's the maximum number of results you can change anyway. Mm. Um, Luke Skywalker in an X-Wing rolls two green defense dice and regenerates a force token every time he is declared as the target of an attack. Yes. So he effectively always has modification on one of his dice. And with two dice, that's mathematically more significant than it would be on a three dice ship, mm. which is, this is X-Wing math stuff, but it's, it's an interesting kind of addition to the game for that reason. But you're right that it doesn't necessarily interact with uh, a huge number of other systems. So um could if I remember, it's been a few weeks since we played the game. Um, could Vader use force to perform extra maneuvers? Yeah. So Vader's ability is Vader has a really high force pool of yeah. three. It's the highest in the game, I think. And, um, after he does an action, um, he can spend a force token to do another action. And a universal rule in X-Wing is you can <coughs> never do the same action twice in a round. So you can't just keep barrel rolling okay, sideways. Yeah. Well. <laughs> uh, no matter how good a trick it is, you yeah. can't keep spinning. Um, and, uh, but, it means that like off any action vader can sort of chain things into crazy combos but in doing so you kind of completely drain your force pool and it only regenerates at a rate of one per turn and then you lose your rerolls potentially for potentially or you, 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 your modification your your token based oh, modification yeah, yeah. yeah um luke's ability is he gains one every time he's declared as a target of an attack but it has a cap of two so mm. it's slightly lower but um you know i i sort of helped you build that initial squad and uh you can give luke an ability that allows him to spend a force token to ignore the target lock requirement on special munitions. Yeah. So like normally if you want to fire a proton torpedo, you require a lock in a kind of thematic way. Uh, one of the force upgrades allows a force sensitive pilot like Luke to ignore that requirement in return for a force token, mm. which is Luke switching his targeting computer off and firing with the force, Yeah. Um, which is very powerful. That's uh, And that does actually, it is an interesting system actually, because it does create interesting decisions. Like do you, do you want torpedoes? Or do you want modification on some defense rolls or something like that? Yeah, right. So, um, 
it does, at that point, it doesn't really need, as long as it's generating inter- interesting decisions, it doesn't need to interact with other systems, really. It interacts with a few things. Like, um, there was a, there's a critical hit. So a critical hit in X-Wing is when you take a damage, it has to go through your shields, and then rather than dealing the damage card face down, you deal it face up, mm. in which case it has some other condition on it. And one of them that was really nasty in first edition, uh, was called Blinded Pilot, mm. which means that you, um, when you next, try and attack with that ship all you do is repair that crit but you don't do anything else so yeah. that you, you don't get to shoot now blinded pilot rather than preventing you from shooting what it does is it prevents you from modifying the attack roll in any way except with force dice which is kind of nice force token sorry which is nice in a kind of thematic way yeah, it means yeah. that if you are blinded by an explosion you i mean this is one of the ways the game does tell stories if you're blinded by an explosion a regular pilot can't do anything about that but mm. a force sensitive pilot can still sense yeah you know the target or something which yeah. is kind of neat in a sort of yeah like i say in a themey kind of way uh, i like the changes uh i think it's an improvement to turrets but i still am not sure about turrets um based on what i played uh so the turrets used to just be like auto rotating there were 360 flat degree damage damage yeah. just do it and, I, and that fucking sucked like mm. even, i didn't i didn't play the game huge amount but i could tell already that it was just like annoying flat damage it created a it created a race whereby aces had to be given upgrades that made them incredibly hard to hit to account for the fact that what's called arc dodging in x-wing where you uh in most in most ships in x-wing have a forward facing firing arc Mm. and if you maneuver effectively to have them in your arc but you're not in theirs which is called good dog fighting yeah then you have arc dodged them that's what that means um but because a lot of ships in the game had as you say, 360 degree firing arcs effectively with a turret. Mm. Um, that meant that, uh, for example, you ended up with upgrades like auto thrusters, which what they did was it meant that if you were being shot and you weren't in your opponent's primary firing arc, which normally is forwards, mm. then you could automatically add an evade result to your role, uh, which is super effective, but it also had some other qualifications that meant that it was good generally. Mm. So it created this defensive arms race between turreted ships that were creating like a, a flat damage level. Like the way of thinking of X-Wing first edition was, that sort of auto damage turret stuff you were talking about became basically the equivalent of Magic the Gathering burn deck. Right. It became like, it wasn't totally broken, was but it, play around it, it escalated like the average amount of damage you can expect to take per turn is this mm. in X-Wing. You've got to mitigate. And so anything that couldn't mitigate it fell off the radar completely. Yeah. And anything that could was obviously better so that you wouldn't. So in the end, what happened is no one ran those sort of like generic turret lists because there was no point you might as well go to the thing that's better than that mm. but it creates this baseline that the rest of the balance of the game has to flex around yeah and that's gone to say what you're going to say about turrets but that has gone at the yeah first. so that's huge that that sounds that sounds awesome i think um so you, to rotate a turret you need to take an action to do it mm-hmm. and uh, i don't know why you would ever do that i think like you'd set up a ship and deploy it with a turret pointing in one particular direction and then you know fly the ship around in circles around the edges so that you never have to take that action and you can save that action for extra you know modifications yeah. so so the action economy doesn't seem very efficient for turret maneuvering so changing position so um in new x-wing you your turret faces in a direction that's the arc and you can take an action to change the arc um but that's an action and actions yeah. are so huge in the game i don't know like yeah. I think there are circuits. So I think it, playing a bit more kind of reveals some of the subtlety to that. Yeah. So like, I mean, we played, like, we tried to set up like an interesting game. So we had Empire versus Rebels and you had a Y-Wing with an ion turret. Yeah. And I think the Y-Wing is the perfect example of a ship that actually can play a few different roles. Hmm. Um, but one thing, uh, it kind of, one thing it can do is, yeah, point the turret sideways and orbit. 
the, yeah. the board, which is why facing inwards. Um, yeah, um, I think, and then in that kind of circumstance that we ended up with, where you have like a, a big melee in the middle of the board, the Y wing's very strong there because it can just orbit that thing. Mm. Um, but that's also in the context of you know that Y wing was one of four ships that you had. If you take, for example, like the Millennium Falcon, which is another turreted ship, that will occupy more than half of your list, and therefore getting it to shoot every turn is really important mm. because the proportional amount of your points that you're not spending, you're not, you're not wasting, value. right? Yeah. So rotating the turret in that case. And there are, you know, crew cards, for example, that allow you to rotate the turret under certain circumstances or, or whatever. So there are sort of, mm. and the game is quite big on effects that allow you to like pass actions off onto other ships and things. So there are ways of sort of manipulating that. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think I would defend it on that basis that like, it's uh, not what it was as well. It's, it's certainly not what it was. Yeah. And also it creates sort of choices that you have to make, like at different points. Like hmm. I think, you know, you experience one particular build of a turret. And I would argue that in 2.0, one thing that's really strong about the game is there are multiple different builds for turrets, basically. Yeah, sure. Like there's a, you know, there's a, a gunner that allows you to shoot once from your main gun and once from your turret, if you have both a main gun and a turret. Hmm. And that creates an archetype for Y-wings, for example, where you can point the turret forwards right. in the same direction as the yeah, main yeah, gun yeah. and just charge just at people yeah, and yeah. joust people, which is very different to that orbiting kind of strategy. And that's something I really wanted the game to gain, which hmm. is like this chassis, the Y-wing, uh, is this fighter bomber and it can be all of those different things it can be a torpedo boat it can be a bomber mm. it can be a, a sort of orbiting turret sniper it can be a f- close-up kind of brawler that maybe charges initially firing forwards mm. and then as it passes through the melee rather than try and turn around it rotates the turret backwards and at this point that action becomes efficient because you know your opponent is probably busy trying to turn around mm. and with one action you can keep moving whatever direction you want to yeah, and yeah. fire yeah, keep firing. Defend necessarily. You, you get shots in that you wouldn't be getting otherwise. Um, and that's much more interesting than it used to be, which is you might do both. Like, yeah. You just, it used to suck. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it used to suck. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. That was good. We had a really good game. Um, uh, and it was very much a game of tight flying through asteroids and, you know, a lot of the kind of actual dogfighting shit that really draws me to the game. Yeah. Um, it was flying a B wing. Which is super fun to fly. That thing is so cool. That that thing has an awesome dial. <laughs> yeah, the B wings are really fun. I used to love B wings, but they're, they're good now. Yeah, so um, just the ability to you know flip around in a crazy maneuver where you just kind of like do a turn and then end up facing backwards to where you're coming, mm-hmm. and maybe you get a stress, whatever. You know, it's just a badass move anyway. And you can you shed a, stre- a stress quite easily on a B wing, it seems, by just going forwards too or something. Uh, so yeah, the, the the ships have personality in their dials yeah isn't that so and that's like such a cool mechanic the idea that a movement dial and you know um so if you're not familiar with x-wing you move by uh placing like templates of arcs or straight you know like rulers basically Mm. you you stick a ruler on the front of your ship and so if you want to you know bank one right there's a bank one right ruler that you put on to the front of your ship and then you move it along that ruler to the, till it gets to the end and this denotes your ship's maneuverability you can perform actions after that let you barrel roll which let you, let you shuffle yeah left to right that kind of thing uh, and adjust your position but fundamentally th- this kind of little set of rulers you have is how ships movement personality is defined and the dial determines which maneuvers give you stress, which again, you know, prevent you from performing actions. The action economy is like vital to X-Wing. And there are green moves that de-stress you and there are just white moves that are normal. Mm. And this is such an elegant system 
that creates a sense of what a ship does or can do as yeah. a physical object that is is one of the, the coolest tabletop systems I've encountered. Like uh, as, and we've seen them try to replicate it in their kind of war game fantasy, like in, their in version Legion, of war. Yeah. yeah, but it's so elegant for like individual ships that are just trying to fly through asteroids and trying to flip around and get and get arcs on each other. Like uh, it's a properly awesome dogfighting system. Yeah, and the nice thing is that they've, I think, pretty substantially increased the skill cap. Mm. of the game as well so in the old version of x-wing if you uh it's this is a big deal maybe i don't want to get into the weeds on it too much but in the old version of x-wing you have certain maneuvers that can fail mm. so uh a target lock if you're going to require one has to be acquired uh weapon range in x-wing is measured from range one to range three um and to get a target lock you have to declare the target the target lock and then if it's within range three you can get a target lock and if it's not you can't um <laughs> Similarly, a barrel roll used to be a maneuver um, to either side and you could kind of like sort of finagle the positioning of the template a bit to kind of slide forwards and backwards yeah. until you fit somewhere. That Similarly, a boost, um, which is a, a sort of thrusting move that takes you forwards, uh, you, you sort of declare where you wanted to go and if it didn't work, you could try something else. Now, if you declare the action, you have to say, I'm going to do a target lock on this ship. If it turns out it's out of range, uh, you have failed. You don't get to try another action. Mm. You, 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 you screwed up. Similarly, you, uh, barrel rolls are now a little bit more limited in where they can go, but in a good way. So now you say something like, I'm going to barrel roll left and forwards. And if it turns out that doesn't quite fit in the gap you were hoping to fit into, you've lost your action. Mm. And that's really big because it rewards the core skill of X-Wing, which isn't really present in most of the war games that I can think of, mm. which is, cause war games are either sort of grid based and therefore kind of pretty definite in terms of what, where you can go or, or hex or square based. Or they are uh, analog in the way that Warhammer is analog, where both players kind of agree on the intent of a move. Mm. Like, I am moving into range here, or I am moving into cover here, in order to kind of preserve your sanity. <laughs> because everyone understands that models get wobbly and fall over and things. Sure. X-Wing is both analog and extremely precise mm. in terms of movement. So what X-Wing rewards is your ability to look at... Because you can't pre-measure anything in X-Wing. It rewards your ability to look at the table and go a three bank maneuver is going to take me exactly around the asteroid without clipping it. Mm. Um, and that is just a learned physical skill. It's a rare example of a genuine like physical skill yeah. in a war game and the new action system uh, also massively rewards that because if you can eyeball what range three looks like, you can pull off target locks that are much riskier than another player would be able to. And that elevation of the, the skill cap I think is, is mm. really interesting um, and it's kind of, int the game just had its, one of its first kind of big top level tournaments. And what's kind of interesting is the top lists were relatively similar. I think I said this in Discord already, so people might, might have heard me say this, but, um, in the old, in, in, in 1.0 towards the end, the top lists being similar was pretty much a sign of the times because it demonstrated that there was stuff in the game that was just pretty busted, mm. basically quite low skill cap very reliable the best players would still probably win and there were always exceptions to these things but the best players were all playing stuff that you could face roll with if you've never played the game before right um because this the power creep was so excessive and what's interesting is the stuff that's winning now the similar lists are not identical but they include a lot of the highest skill cap stuff in the game. And so it's interesting what having similar lists at the top tables means now is different because essentially both lists were extremely fragile Imperial aces 
and then a big Imperial bomber that takes care of TIE swarms. Mm. And it was the same archetype. And if those are both lists that if you make a single mistake in the course of an entire tournament, you've lost. Mm. But basically what that meant was the two players that made the fewest mistakes made the final with the stuff that rewards you the most for making no mistakes, which is exactly where the game should be. Mm. And there's probably some work to be done from a balance point of view, just to the fact that like this always used to be where Imperials lived. Uh, it's an interesting bit of faction design that Imperials always had this kind of high risk, high reward thing mm. where their ships are super fragile, but quite powerful. So if you don't make any mistakes and you never take fire that you shouldn't, then you'll do amazingly well. Whereas rebels and scum have always been a little bit safer. Mm. And so there's some, you know, and so what this meant was for a while in next wing first edition, Imperials won a lot because the best players might as well take the highest risk, highest reward faction. And then over the course of a long day of Swiss pairings, it'll probably be one of those that rise to the top, whichever one happens to have the best day. Yeah. So they have some, maybe some work to do to make sure that rebels and in scum have high skill cap options, mm. but that is a much better position to be in than where 1.0 ended up, which was basically just extremely reliable rebel and scum lists, completely dominating everything because they both had the damage output, to overthrow anything Imperials could do mm. and the reliability. You know what I mean? It's like, as long as they don't go back in that position. <laughs> kind of concentration buffer where, you know, a player doesn't have to concentrate 100% all the time in order to make the list work. So yeah. you could just fly it and fly it and fly it and it will mostly be fine. Yeah. And against a lot of opponents, you can fly a straight line and yeah. just roll dice and you'll win. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So it's, it's in a good place, I think. I haven't, I haven't managed to do first tournament yet because I've managed to be away every single time there's been a local tournament, mm. but I'm, I'm excited to to get back to it because it is still you know it's still, it will always be the game that got me back into miniatures games and yeah, it's, yeah. it's still such a great thing when it all kind of comes together mm. we should play more honestly because i yeah. should see more of the stuff that's going I'd, on i'd love to I, I had a great time playing it and it reminded me of why i loved loved what i played of it before so much as well yeah uh i i always get this thing with like card games and stuff as well where when you know it's so big and when it is competitive and uh there's always a kind of obligation to kind of try to suddenly understand all of it and trying to suddenly mm. kind of tune into the whole thing. Whereas it's, it's fine to just play semi competitive knockabout lists and just sort of enjoy the game to get used to it before. You, and it, it, onboarding is quite difficult for that type of game. Sometimes I've, I found. Yeah. I think X-Wing um, in its current state is actually quite good for that because mm. honestly, like obviously there is a meta, there will always be a meta, yeah, but you know, things are, pretty much up in the air at the moment. And I think there's still time for stuff to be discovered. And I think it's one thing that's really important is pretty much the majority of games are going to be won by the person who makes the fewest mistakes rather than anything that really happens at the list building stage. Yeah, that's cool. And so, you know, like you could probably just play the same basic stuff. And if you practice with it, good with it, you'll win a decent amount of games, mm. which didn't used to be the case. So mm. Like, um, you know, it used to have the problem of it was a best of one game, but that was hugely matchup dependent, which is a game is, is an issue that affects a lot of war games, I think, hmm. because you don't have time to play best of threes, but you're tremendously matchup dependent in terms of what you can and can't beat a lot of the time. So that's it, it's going to be dice dependent as well to an extent. Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm. Um, on top of that. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and the thing is that an X-Wing, because of the way the action system works, everyone is dice dependent and a miracle roll, you know, a game full of miracle rolls will win you a game. Mm. But broadly speaking, you control your variance through the efficiency of the actions you take and yeah. the quality of the decisions that you make, which is as it should be. Mm. Um, you know, two jousting lists flying at each other. Yeah. That will probably be a dice off, a dice off. <clears throat> but broadly speaking, but you can choose not to do that, right? You can mm. choose to try and manipulate that circumstance so that you get the better joust, etc. by, 
careful range control and that mm. kind of thing. So there are always things you can do to mitigate variance in that regard. But one of the weaknesses of the old game was there were certain things you just couldn't do that are just like this hard counters the hell out of me. So mm. bye, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, and that's, you know, at that point, the, 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 the variance you're playing against isn't really anything that happens in the game. It's the variance that happens in the pairing system. Mm. And that's not, you know, that is a, a form of meta game you can play. You can try and gamble for a favorable matchup by looking at what's likely to be brought in tournament and playing against it. But at that point, you're playing a game beyond the game. And it's really nice to have things come back to decision making with the little spaceships yeah. right now. I'm kind of torn because, um, I could, I could pick up X-Wing second edition, get my scum kind of conversion kit, whatever. Uh, yeah. So upgrade kit. Um, but there's also Shade Spire knocking around. Night that, Vault. Night Vault. We, we have to stop saying Shade Spire. We do actually, yes. Yeah. Warhammer Underworlds. Night, Night Vault. Vault. Yeah. Uh, so second edition, one Underworld sort of. It's kind of soft second edition, it feels like. Yeah, um, it's not, uh, it is, it is, I, I think of it, um, more as season two. Hmm. In the same way that like Magic the Gathering or something goes through card sets. Yeah. This feels like set two. I can imagine set three coming out next year hmm. and then retiring set one. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. That would make sense. And uh, I think we mentioned this last month briefly, but um, I'm glad that, you know, all my warbands and cards still matter to yeah. an extent, apart from this Falkor God, who uh, <laughs> just were never very good. <laughs> there, was a, there was a period seemingly within the first sort of weeks of the game being released where um, uh, a guy called, oh, what's his name, Rue something from uh, Games Workshop, won the first official tournament with Falkor God. Yeah. Just by playing, like, really aggressively. And, uh, but that was, like, people were literally taking the new expansion warbands out of the boxes on the day because they were being released on the day that the tournament was happening. Yeah. And since then, my poor skellies have, have fallen off forever. So it would be nice to get back into it with a new warband that might be able to win a game every now and mm. then. And the starting factions in the new set are, seem to be really fun. Yeah, uh, so the Stormcast Evocators, uh, which I've played against, I haven't played with, mm. and the Nighthaunt. Yes. Um, so yeah, so the new, the new edition adds, uh, they've been very aggressive, so there are now, the first wave of expansions came out straight away, as we mentioned earlier, so mm -hmm. there are now, uh, and yeah, it's, it's backwards compatible. And actually, in fact, there's kind of more than that, because, so they put out, um, the core set, which includes, yeah, uh, Stormcast Evocators and Nighthaunt. Yeah. And their various cards. Um, and a, a, so it's like in a completely new card set. So it's a new set of 557 cards or something, um, which, but there are some overlaps. Mm. So like supremacy, for example, is in both sets. Uh, the objectives one to five are in both sets. Yeah. So not every mm. card is unique to, to Nightfall. Um, but then very quickly afterwards, they put out, uh, the Zinch Warband, which obviously is very exciting for me, the Zinch Man, uh, the, uh, the goblin or grot warband, which is mental. Yeah. <laughs> Almost certainly talking about really it. Really crazy. Um, and they also, uh, re-released the former core set warbands. Mm. So Garrick Shrievers and Steelheart's champions as new standalone warbands, uh, with loads of new cards mm. with them. But they also released alongside that a 10 quid card pack called Echoes of Glory that contains all of the new neutral cards from those sets yeah if that makes sense mm. so you don't have to which is just a kind of safeguard against people feeling like they have to rebuy mm. uh those warbands if they bought the original shades by a yeah. set which of course we both did so yeah, yeah. um 
so yeah, it's actually like between all of that stuff, it's like if I think there's been like a couple of hundred new cards for the whole game already. Yeah, which, which crazy. is crazy. Like there's, there's so, so much that I haven't processed it all yet, and I've mm. just been sort of fishing around. But there's a lot of good new stuff. Um, the big standout new thing is well, like really in terms of core rule stuff, they've they've tidied up a few things and incorporated some FAQs for the original game into the new rulebook. So mm. that's housekeeping basically. Uh, the big new thing really is, uh, magic. So, uh, I think almost every leader, all of the Stormcaster wizards, every leader for the new warbands is a wizard. Um, and this gives them access to sometimes spells, which are cast using new dice that are on their cards. But also there is, um, they've kind of what used to be used to have upgrades and ploys in your power deck. Mm. Now you have upgrades and gambits and gambit is now a category that includes both ploys, which are the old ploys. And spells. Yeah. So these are sort of magic spells you can cast. And these are interesting in a way because they sort of sit alongside, uh, talking about systems that interact with each other. They're kind of like, um, spells that sit alongside, um, the old, uh, so there used to be ploys, for example, that had a chance at failing, right? Um, but because these belong to a kind of like the magic system, which is a number of special dice that wizards roll, uh, with different upgrades and things that interact with them. They're kind of, they sit somewhere in the, in the gap between what would previously have been like an attack action, for example, where you can modify that with upgrades on your character and the old sort of this ploy has a 50% chance to trigger system. Mm. It's like, you know, you know, you might have like, we came up in a game we played earlier, but you might have a healing spell and you might have upgrades that make that healing spell more likely to cast when you finally get around to it. And that's really good in a game like Shades by, yeah. oh, sorry, Nightfall, because, um, it means that you can be holding that card and think, well, I'm going to wait for this upgrade to come off because I only get to use this card once and I want to make sure it hmm. triggers, etc. I mean, big part of Underworlds is kind of, um, power arcs for yeah. p- being able to put upgrades or you know ploys on specific characters to unlock their potential and it does seem like the magic system has been designed with that in mind especially for Zinch mm. uh, if not for maybe some of the others because Zinch is the only magic really seen in the game so far but it definitely see- it feels like you're rewarded for synergizing you know getting your upgrades together with your magic powers to actually yeah do more reliable uh, damage or reliable healing yeah it's um it's worth, I think, if you get a chance playing a game with or against the Evocators, because mm. they are always casting spells. Right. They are like very, very <clears throat> magic heavy. Because I think they're the only warband where everyone's a wizard. Well. Um, and that's pretty powerful. And they, they inspire when they cast spells as well. So they're kind of encouraged to be always doing it. Huh, interesting. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's telling that they've put a wizard in every warband. Mm. And it seems like they're going to keep doing that probably till they get to the carriage. And, yeah. It seems, um, um it, it gets slightly confusing where like, you, you can roll to defend against some spells, but not others. Yeah, There's that's interesting categorization. It's there. like, I think it's because some of them are attack actions. Mm. So some of them are attack actions that use the magic dice rather than the previous attack dice, which has the effect of like some of the odds are the same, but, um, the, the spell dice don't have assist icons on them. So mm. they don't care about adjacency in that way. Yeah. Which, um, can be quite good. Um, but you get to defend against them. Whereas some spells just do an effect mm. if you cast them successfully. So, right. um, and those spells, like the damage on them is actually like very low by, uh, I don't think there are, I think there's only, like, there are only a handful of damaging spells I can think of. And the damage is always very limited. Mm. So, um, if, if it's not something you can dodge, the damage is almost always one. 
and it's usually heavily uh, contextualized in some way. So, for example, one of them involves like do one damage to every adjacent enemy, which is quite powerful. Mm. But you don't want if your wizard is surrounded by enemies, then one damage is a probably not going to be enough to kill them, and b you're that's bad. That's <laughs> like right. you're in a bad place. There is and there is one zinch spell that has the potential to do more, but it's you roll two dice for it basically, mm. and it succeeds on a particular symbol, but it does one extra damage for every crit. So it's it can do one to three damage basically yeah which is as much as it gets and in uh you know that's i i think that's about right like i kind of sometimes wish aos's magic worked this way that it was sometimes like more reliable but did less damage than the average attack yeah because like it's quite easy in 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 underworlds and it has been for a long time to get even a basic character up to a four damage attack at least once yeah sure like using just regular attacks so magic feels to me very much in line if not slightly weaker than um, safer but weaker than like putting hero slayer which is a sword that does four damage off the bat but only rolls one dice hmm. onto a goblin yeah. for example <laughs> yeah, right yeah. like the, there were always ways of doing this in the game That's it's not true. like magic kind of escalates beyond what hmm. is is possible through other means yeah I, I i do enjoy the kind of flat sort of damage output that that magic has um it seems more like the weirder spell to be more interesting like yeah they like feels like magic shouldn't necessarily exist just to be arcane bolts all the time no it feels like it should do weird stuff there's, there's a lot of stuff that i think there's in those decks i haven't really played with yet mm. like um there's healing there's also like adding and removing attack dice from characters that's interesting there's one that like uh so the game has gained lethal hexes which are hexes on the board that do one damage when you are pushed into them or enter them yeah and there's a spell that allows you to basically like so the game has now a scatter system uh which is probably more than we have time to explain but allows you to kind of like move random direction from a particular originating hex Mm -hmm. there's a spell that allows you to kind of like summon whatever's lethal about that hex and have it like snake a course away from that hex and do Mm. damage on its path so basically like temporarily extend a lethal hex and then Uh, retreat it again so there's stuff like that that's kind of neat again that does one damage because it's what a lethal hex does but it's sort of like interesting how that's applied right like it just some weirdness and unpredictable there is definitely there seems to be more unpredictability in um yeah in, in this in this box like but that's probably because we were playing with goblins for, <laughs> for one game and their whole thing seems to just be like yeah so just to <laughs> clarify we played two games you played night haunt both times yeah searching for a worthy replacement to your skeletons they're and so finding much, ghosts they're much better than sparkle guards i think i mean I, I don't know if they're actually like you know tournament better or whatever but just mm more fun more mm. options more resilient faster they're able to actually go and achieve things whereas the spoke guard they're so slow it's very hard to get them in position and i played my first games with zinch and um the goblins yeah so um zinch are super weird mm. they're so weird yeah it was interesting it was a really interesting game they're actually. kind of unlike any other warband i've played yeah yeah like it's, it's weird to know what to do with them as well they have the lowest health off the bat of any warband mm. like they have a guy with four the leader a guy with three and two with two mm. which is f all in in underworld's terms yeah like if you compare that to something like the uh, magos fiends the blood warriors who i think start with three people with four wow. and a dog with three like you know it's mm. it's 16 sorry um 15 starting health versus uh 11 like it's it mm. makes a big difference particularly when you can get those big damage attacks off the bat but there's a sort of they because they're all ranged and they kind of inspire by doing damage from a far as far away as possible 
they're a warband that requires you to plan like several steps ahead mm. and sort of you like that they, they are i've been playing blood reavers for so long they're kind of the opposite like blood reavers do the best when they get a big advantage off the top and kind of snowball off that whereas zinch is they kind of are pretty much always going to win the game in in round in the second or third phase they're mm. never going to like do incredible damage off the bat because half their attacks only do one damage yeah. at the start of the game with no real way of upgrading them so yeah that's hard because they 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 struggle to access like early glory to yeah. get those upgrades on so you, you want to build i imagine if you're building a deck for them you want to build some like early glory objectives into that deck just yeah to supremacy for example super, yeah it's a good one um and you have the ability to summon this blue horror that turns <laughs> yeah. into a ribstone horrors that doesn't die basically mm. like and there's lots of stuff that's surprisingly powerful in there and like fun little combos but yeah it's surprising that like the two acolytes that are in that warband have the same kind of like stat line and apart from the range the same basic damage potential is like either of the worst blood reavers and so even though they make up 50 percent of your warband as you deploy it you still have to like you, know, you have to treat them as relatively precious they have about as much value as the disposable dudes from the corn warband mm. that then you know and that's really interesting because we play this game and i i sort of really didn't know whether i was spending the right people at the right time but managed to kind of in that game kind of get into a position where actually the mage the, the leader becomes really powerful after a certain amount of time yeah, to yeah. upgrades yeah. and the zangor does go off as mm. well and at that point you could just do so much killing that you know i could just start eating ghosts yeah which is good just it's sucking up with a big straw yeah exactly it was uh yeah it was that was an interesting fight actually because I, I was getting to grips with the night for the first time and they are very fast they've got a character who you can just cause all pretty much 60 percent of the warband to just move two mm. and it's not even a move they can still move after that individually or charge or attack it's just a, a shove a kind of magical he shove. just pushes ghosts it's which is so good like it's a really amazing ability um so uh, they also want to swarm people because if they activate and they're in adjacency with an enemy that's how they inspire so they want to get in the swarm and then activate and then like i didn't know how to like get the points out of that like was to actually achieve that situation yeah it's like how do i actually get glory out of this like because just killing everyone is an option obviously but doesn't tend to happen in chase bar games so mm. it's like how do you convert this to victory and spock guard have a similar problem uh the main problem that the guard have is that they feed and they have to feed in order to inspire and um so you're already like in debt before you start trying to achieve your objectives and chain wraps and stuff can't come back but at least they can achieve things before they die yeah and because they roll two defense dice when they're inspired they mm. do actually and they're relatively easy to inspire they take a bit of killing. Like, mm. a good roll will save them. Like, yeah, a good roll will save them. They've also got a lot of cool cards, um, like protective cards for, there's like a sort of chief chain rasp. I can't remember what his name is. Uh, Vaclav. Is Vaclav. Vaclav. So Vaclav's the guy who moves them all, but he's not a chain rasp himself, right? No, he's not. Oh, oh, the Everhanged. It's the Everhanged. Yeah. Um, and he's actually like surprisingly. Yeah, he's the tasty, good one. actually. Like, I think, I think that, like, so the, the Briar Queen, who's the Banshee kind of leader, mm. is very, very, very powerful. Mm. But I think a lot of the success of that warband, and I think you maybe find that in the second game we played, depends on how well the Everhanged and Vaclav do. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. Is, yeah, definitely. I, I also think the, um, the Briar Queen needs a couple of upgrades to get online. Yeah. She needs to protect the upgrades because she's actually quite fragile. 
and she also needs to be inspired to start doing the real damage. Uh, but some of her, like, so there are some fantastic cards for Nighthorn. I love the relocation abilities. So there are some like ploys that let you sort of vanish from one hex and then just respawn on any sort of spawning hex anywhere on the battlefield. As long as, you know, a, a kind of spawn point, um, they can just pop up there. So she can just go and try and assassinate someone. But she's got to have some protective upgrades on there, I think. If you, if you're going to go deep into enemy territory and do yeah. that, like she's just got to have some. You definitely on it. fell afoul of that against the goblins. Yeah. But that was, <laughs> that was a good learning experience. It was like, okay, so like she has the ability to go in and one shot people, but she's not coming back. <laughs> yeah. Don't, yeah. <laughs> so don't get pushed into a big arcane pylon by a little goblin. Yes. Don't, <laughs> don't let that happen to you. Um, but also you can, you could do rad stuff like you could, teleport her in so she, she you, you could put an upgrade on her that uh as a charge move she can relocate to a spawn point so you yeah can, you can measure the charge from any spawn point rather than from where she actually is yeah which is rad which is rad or she would just go spawn there and attack like if she's right, right yeah next yeah because she has oh, she has a range attack as well so. yeah yeah so she could do she could go in like let's say she spawns next to someone um you do that as kind of charge and she attacks then there's a ploy in the Nighthorn deck that lets you just redeploy someone to any other hex. So you can just bring her back into your own territory onto one of your own spawns. Yeah, yeah. Like there's crazy stuff you can do. It's really exciting. And like, all this movement and kind of, and they behave a lot like ghosts. They are like, there's, they're just scary and they can pop up anywhere. And they've can, done such a good job of marrying theme to rules, I think. I think so. With, with that, just playing two games with them, like it definitely felt that way. Because you've got all these swarming ghosts that are kind of, you know, ghoulish and they're, they're trying to tear down the smaller characters. But then your major characters, they, they can just teleport around and sort of haunt people <laughs> and yeah. go boo and then kill me. Or, or, fa- or miss, or, or fail all of the attack rolls. Yes. Yeah. I was really taken with the goblins as well for like how <laughs> mad they are. Yeah. They're the highest model count warband yeah. at nine. Yeah. Which is crazy. So, no summoning or anything. It's just one of them is a squig handler with two squigs. And when you deploy him, mm. you deploy him in a deployment hex. And then the, the two squigs get placed adjacent to him. Yeah. Wherever you like. And they seem like, uh, that was the second game we played. Mm. Uh, so we both won. I won, I won with Zinch and then you won with the Nighthaunt against the goblins. Mm. And that was kind of mad. Cause like the goblins, like they do like, I kind of, I've always liked goblins. I said this, I, I was mean about orcs earlier and it's probably because I've always liked goblins. Like mm. I think uh, they're almost more fun to me in terms of them being like underdogs basically. Yeah. And the nice thing about the, 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 uh, moon clan grots as they are properly called is they're all complete shit. They're all garbage. Like every single individual one of them yeah. is a, is a tiny little hooded shit weirdo who can't do fucking anything, mm. who has two health and falls over in a breeze. But they're, they're kind of built around these combos where if you can get into the right position, they do, suddenly do shit loads of damage, which is kind of as it should be. Yeah. So that's for the majority of them. So like you have the squigs, which are quite good generally and become very good if the handler dies, which is a fun mechanic because it encourages you to put the handler out in front and <laughs> yeah. try and like, you know, get him killed basically, yeah. which I tried to do and didn't work. <laughs> like you wouldn't take the bait. Like, please kill this <laughs> goblin. Cause I want they're scary, those squigs. They're, they're baseline. They're rolling hammers. Yeah. Aren't they? Two damage. Two, yeah. yeah. Like two squigs can take down a stormcast, which yeah. is about the right amount of squig to stormcast. <laughs> um, and, um, but also like, there's like great little ploys, like, uh, there's a, a ploy that I didn't get to pull off quite as I wanted, but which is called stab him in the knee, mm. um, which is you add, um, one to the damage of an attack for every supporting character, i.e. every kind of person 
adjacent to the enemy after the first. Hmm. So it means that if you can get someone completely surrounded by goblins, then they get stabbed in the knee by the one goblin they're not expecting and die basically because <laughs> it can go to like four damage or something. That's crazy. Um, and the art for that is great because mm. it's one of the big corn warriors just being like surrounded by goblins and one of them stabbing him in the back of the knee. It takes you a while looking at the art to realize which one it is, <laughs> like, which <laughs> is very, be. very goblins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then on top of all of this, you've got the fanatic. Um, like if there's something you could say about night vault, it's the, in finding new mechanics for these war bands, they're definitely expanding the amount of text you can fit on these cards. Yeah. That, I mean, good luck reading the essays that are printed on the goblin cards and also you know, i understand why because you've got to be very precise with your language when it comes to when things move and how they move and stuff like that like you've got to you've got to lay it out there but wow they're stretching the limits of human eyes <laughs> so this is how mad it gets so every single uh goblin not squigs shares a rule that is printed on the card of the leader which mm. is called scurry which means that if a got if a if a goblin makes a move action then every goblin, then any goblins that were adjacent to that goblin when it moves also get to make a move action and it chains. Hmm. So if you ever manage to orchestrate a situation where all your goblins are standing in a conga line, they can all move off what a single activation, which is very, very efficient yeah. as far as, uh, uh, as underworlds goes. Um, and then there is also a sort of linked thing, which is, uh, the squig handler has an action, which allows him to move himself and any adjacent squigs and therefore any adjacent goblins as well. So you can use this to kind of propel people into the enemy lines. Mm. But after the first activation of the game, regardless of whose activation it is, as far as I can tell, the fanatic inspires. <laughs> and as soon as the fanatic who is, if you're not aware of what a goblin fanatic is, is a goblin with a huge ball and chain mm. who spins around. As soon as he inspires, he loses the ability to move, charge, attack, and go on guard, basically do any of the traditional actions. And when you activate him... Uh, he just scatters four spaces from his current space. And so this basically means you roll four dice and put down the special template and then try and like chart a course. Each dice is like a direction you can go and you just try and just hope to God that you get where you're trying to go. Basically, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. every time you move into an occupied hex, so a hex where an enemy is, you push that, no, not enemy, anyone, you push that somebody and deal a damage to them and mm. then just bounce off on your merry way. And so if you can get him into enemy territory early, he becomes enormously disruptive because um, he rolls three defense dice, which is the most in the game. Uh, only has three health, but he's quite hard to kill mm. and doesn't do loads of damage, but just doesn't stop pushing people, mm. basically. So uh, it takes an action to do it, but like as long as the fanatic is doing stuff, then people are going to be disrupted basically yeah and it's just it's just such a weird design but it's, mm. it was it was really fun even in the game we played to kind of like basically the entire game came down to one fanatic move it did. if he hadn't been a huge garbage pile of shit <laughs> would have won me the game but he decided to just spin back and forwards like a big twat yeah that it was it, it was really <laughs> close um th that was a really fun game like yeah I think a little bit of everything happened. Uh, there was a lot of go just goblin nonsense. Yeah. There was a lot of ghost nonsense. It was, uh, yeah, my leader pushed the briar. You tried to like assassinate my leader with the briar queen. I did. Failed. And then my leader pushed the briar queen into a trap, which killed her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, which is like, ain't afraid of no ghosts. Yeah. Ain't afraid. Well, so I said this while we were playing, but the, 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 the great thing about the phrase, ain't afraid of no ghosts is it's a double negative mm. so you are afraid of some ghosts <laughs> and i was in this case afraid of, afraid of vaclav the cruel yes he did come and kill a lot of people before being killed by the fucking swollest goblin yeah damn like 
That goblin is MVP. Well, he sort of was. So I gave one goblin a shade glass spear, which mm. is like potentially a plus one damage spear that shatters when it's successful, and plus one damage to give him the potential to do four damage off a single hit. Mm. And then he tried to stab Vaclav the Cruel, a ghost, four separate times before it finally connected and killed him. I mean, I mean, it's, he, he is a ghost. <laughs> he is a ghost. So you're collecting it, it all. One, it was stick it, the shit goblin the back, <laughs> just trying to stab this ghost. And they immediately paid for it with his life. You did. Uh, the, um, uh, so I, I believe, was it Vaclav? I think he had an upgrade on him that meant that he, when he attacked, he, if you rolled evade dice. It didn't count. It just didn't, just didn't count, which is an amazing card against yeah. certain warbands specifically. And all of the goblins roll evade dice. Yeah. So all you have. Apart to, from the guy with the armor, he rolls, uh, okay, he so rolls he, shields. He, he's got shields. Yeah. Um, but everyone else, like you, You'd have to roll crits. I think you did roll like a. a it was because I was you were, you were attacking the fanatic who rolls three dice. Yes, and I was getting at least one crit every time, yeah, which is yeah. lucky. But it's at the same time, it's like it's, if anyone's going to do gonna it, happen, it'll be the right? fanatic. Yeah, it's yeah. going to happen. Um, so I had this like it, it's weird because like the Briar Queen went down. I suddenly had these two other sort of mini generals as backup who I could sort of try and yeah. get fat and try and roll them into your army and try and kill as many people as possible. Um, it ended up coming down to just I had a very good second round where i got some kind of control cards where um this is very good for night haunts because they could they, because of that move that lets you just move loads of chain rasps you can just go get objectives all over the place and so i just rolled um well in that round and then just took loads of objectives cashed in all of those objectives for glory managed to kill just no goblins and ended up just being just out of your reach but if you had, if your fanatic had to have killed that guy in the very, very last moment of the last round, I would have scored a lot of points. You'd have gone, yeah. you'd have gone big, and then I, th- I think, yeah, I would have won it. But yeah, that was really fun. Like, I, I think I'm going to try and learn Zinch as a mm. kind of main because it's very much my jam, and I think they're really interesting. Yeah, but yeah. I think um, I was thinking about Night Night Haunt myself, but man, the I'm I'm always drawn to the underdog warbands. Like Blood Reavers can definitely win stuff, but they're also kind of an underdog warband in an era of mega tanky orcs and stormcast and blood. Like you know, if I have a criticism of Shadespire, which is a game I loved, it's that like I just played so many games against the tanky warbands that everyone fucking plays. And right. I don't say that to cast a spell. Uh, maybe the way I said that <laughs> maybe cast some aspersions on yeah. things. But like I had multiple tournaments where I only played against orcs mm. and it's because mm. they were much more forgiving than other warbands. Like they're not winning with them. I think takes some skill because they have points of weakness, but like you can't die quickly. Mm. And so stuff doesn't really start to happen for a while. Yeah. Like, you know, all of the warbands that couldn't die quickly or couldn't start really conceding anything quickly. Uh, seemed to, to dominate the sort of that game, at least the level I was playing it regularly. Mm. Like, I don't think they were the tournament class stuff, but there was definitely a kind of middle ground, a middle part of the bell curve where you just have these big chunky warbands that don't do anything. And, um, I love that the game is filling up with just weird warbands where stuff is always happening. Like goblins fall over if you sneeze at them. Both of the Kyrak acolytes in the Sinch warband die almost instantly. Yeah. Like, you know, and I, I don't mind that because that's for me what the game's about. It's about these sort of fast decisions that are quite lethal. Mm. And I'd love to see the game. I'd love to see things move back in that direction, basically. I felt like some of the early builds for Stormcast and Orcs were, they synergized with cards that rewarded you for staying in your own territory. Yeah, that's right. And that maybe was, those cards are fine in the current environment where you've got so much invade potential. Uh, there are, you know, yeah. Skaven can just go into, uh, you know, the enemy territory 
at will and night night haunt can with ploys as well and the speed of certain warbands but in the state the game was in where there are only like four or five six warbands available and none of them could do any of that kind of invade stuff yeah those warbands were that's true actually like tanky. if there's a if there's a common theme to so the stormcast evocators who are very much in the old mold mm. and they are very very powerful um you know there's um i think there are a few combos that are a little little scary now mm. um but we'll see if they come off like um uh it used to be it's quite hard for any of the old warbands to sort of invade enemy territory at will and it's interesting that three of the four new ones can all do it very easily yeah so uh goblins are just hyper maneuverable like if you you know one of the sort of standard you know end game kind of objective cards of shadespire is denial which is you score this if there are no enemies in your territory mm. um and it, it combos with a, a card called conquest and that used to be like something you would probably try and switch off on the last turn of the game, but you probably need a model that was in position to move into enemy territory to switch it off. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Zinch leader, as long as the blue horror and the brimstone horror are dead, can summon the brimstone horror to any starting hex with an action. So it is impossible to cover, you know, if you've lost a single model with any warband, it is impossible, apart from maybe the goblins, it is impossible to fully cover all of the yeah. spawn points in your own territory and you wouldn't do even if you could no, i mean it's so many mad to play for that yeah, so, many so that means that wherever that siege leader is on the board as long as they're alive they can switch off those kinds of passive yeah. objectives very very easily mm. goblins get everywhere there's loads of them it's unlikely you're going to kill all of them it's not like you can even control where all of them are going to be <laughs> similarly the night haunt can get around mm. real fast and you know teleport to back hexes and things and i think that's really healthy for the game yeah um as a whole yeah, that's really good. And I, um, I'm interested to see what it does to the tournament kind of side of it. Yeah, the, the turning stuff was always the stuff that disappointed me most about the game, particularly when, say, you've got some orcs fighting some stormcast. And if their decks happen to be particularly defensive, especially their objectives, um, both players would put their boards end to end to create mm. long corridors and very little's going to happen in that game. Like it's just going to be. It's card draw. Basically. It's just good. What, what objectives do you draw? And that, that's who basically wins it. Yeah. Uh, and, that can't happen anymore because Stormcast have three uh, warriors. The orcs have four. That means there are kind of spawn points that are unoccupied, and the you know a lot of warbands can take it, you know, can counterattack using that. Yeah, uh, Skaven can, Nighthawk can. So yeah, that's that's rad. I think there's also a um, a really interesting like um, some of the new. I, I think there's obviously like if you're playing underworlds competitively then like having all of the cards is still a necessity really like mm. and so one of the some of the stuff in the new the echoes of glory card pack which is the thing that steps in in the middle you know to to get you up to speed if you already own steel hearts and, and garrick's reavers um there's a bunch of new score immediately like score immediately is a very powerful mm. it, they are cards that score the moment the condition is triggered rather than at the end of the phase yeah and as soon as you score them you can draw another one so they can combo into each other as well mm. And there's previously they've almost all been like two glory, sorry, one glory for those, like rather than the bigger yeah. scoring cards. One thing they've added is like a bunch of two glory score immediately, which are very, very powerful. Well, um, in fact, goblins have access to a few of them, which I think is how they get ahead, basically mm. given how much they feed. Um, but also one of them that's generic, which I managed to score against you is like, if you kill a character with two upgrades you immediately score yeah, two extra two points for him. So that kill becomes worth three. Yeah. That's great for, it's great for the, the, it's, uh, it's specifically great against the 
traditional kind of load up loads of upgrades on your beefy boys and, and go to town mm. squads. Yep. Um, because, you know, you may get with Reavers, for example, you're probably going to sacrifice one or two people to kill someone like Magor mm. or, um, or Gerzag, the orc boss. But it's very likely your opponent's going to load upgrades on that person as you do it. And so getting those points back, I don't know, a, a danger of turning this into a night vault kind of, you know, balanced chat. Hmm. Like that stuff I find really interesting. Like a lot of stuff is about kind of recouping the cost of certain things. Like there's an interesting Zinch objective, for example, the glory card, sorry, that you score immediately the second time you summon the blue horror. So essentially if you've lost the blue horror and the brimstone horror, you've, you've conceded a glory, hmm. you know, in return for whatever control benefit you've got from summoning it. So that card stands in there partly as a way of earning glory, but also a way of earning back glory that you fed to your opponent. Yeah. And that stuff, that is where I find uh, there's so much about this game. I like, and there's so much about its design that I really like. Yeah. And, um, if I'm reading it right, Night Vault feels like a, a big, a substantial rebalancing of the game towards these trickier warbands mm. and away from the solid dependable stuff. Yeah. And I think, and not to say the game doesn't need both, but it did need some movement back the other way mm. because the other, you know, the solid dependable stuff can't win everything. Mm. Like it needs to be challenged, I think, meaningfully. The, uh, the horror is a really interesting character. I'm, I'm not sure why you'd ever attack it if you ever needed to like yeah i, I think like because you have to so the way it works is that you kill it and then you flip the card it's not inspired but it's basically similar to the inspired mechanic mm. and, it, and it turns into brimstone is that mm-hmm. the the smallest version so it's like two little dancey yellow horrors and they get like two shooting attacks that can chip away one damage each mm-hmm. um so yeah like you, you kill it you don't get a glory for it because it's not dead and then you have to kill it again, and it's also gotten slightly better. <laughs> yeah, it has, uh, and so what you do is you you ignore it. You, like surely you just never. Attack. I think I think that's a nice. This is something I love it's just about. Um, and maybe as we get on talking about other Warhammer stuff, like something I love about that mechanic is I think so. It's interesting because you can spawn the horror on any spawn hex mm. against Night Vault. I'm sorry, Night Haunt at the start of the game. There aren't any spare hexes in a good place because you occupy all of them. There soon will be. But there soon will be. But yeah, but like against something like Stormcast, for example, mm. like it's, you know, that, that little capering horror is very difficult to remove from an objective because yep. you have to kill it twice. Um, short of having a push or something like that. Mm. And so there are going to be times where as Stormcast, for example, you're forced to go kill it because mm. it's the thing locking down supremacy or some other kind of big scoring objective. Yeah. Um, Again, it switches off all the, a lot of the defensive glory mm. uh, objectives that require you to, you know, deny territory. So there, there are the stuff involving keeping the enemy out of your territory, that kind of thing. And that, that horror just spawning in there just stops that from happening. Yeah. And to send one character to deal with it. And if the dice go bad, it's going to take like, a couple the, of goes. The entire game. Like, yeah. It'll take the entire game for one person to clear it off because you've got to kill it twice. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, it, it's an interesting, really, really interesting character. And there's, I think there's a lot of utility in that, that little horror. Yeah. That's the thing I like about these designs is mm. like, it's like, it's not as obvious as simply how do I do the most damage with this? Right. It's like, how do I do the most damage to your activations almost? Yeah. Right. Just kind of denial. Like I've ruined, situations. you know, you know, <laughs> you know, everyone has a variable amount of health in the game of underworlds but everyone has 12 activations in the game yeah and if i can ruin some of them for you <laughs> exactly then, then yeah like that's a good way of thinking about it yeah, yeah. that's a good way of thinking about it 
Um, so it's a cool game. Um, I really, really enjoy playing Life Vault today, actually. I think yeah. it's, I think it's really cool. I'm kind of mad that we've, uh, talked so much about Night Vault and we haven't even finished talking about all the games we played this month. No, we haven't. God, we played so much, so many sort of little disparate yeah. games. So yeah, there was, yeah. So, um, I've also played loads of Kill Team, which I know we mentioned at the top of the order. Yeah. Since recording the last podcast, I've finished painting my Kill Team. Mm. Uh, so I'll put some pics of that in the show notes and stuff. Mm. Um, my Necrons. Yeah. Um, who I, I like very much. Uh, I'm, playing in the local kind of campaign at games workshop and i'm currently undefeated which is a remarkable <laughs> i mean that this is a classic necron i mean well are always undefeated sort of um but so here's the thing that happens so technically i have one draw but like yeah um i declared the draw even though i won the game because of how it ended and this is my first ever game of kill team mm. And so necrons i think are really interesting like i think they're really interesting in design it feels like um they're quite durable um, and they're very high leadership, but their durability arrives in a very different way to, for example, the death guard who feel like, um, so I don't know if this is purely anecdotal or not, but like, I think half of all of the warbands in the league are death guard. <laughs> well, um, because they're very good. Mm. They're very good. And so there's some interesting, like I could talk about kill team for ages and I appreciate we've been, we've been gone for a long time already, but, um, Necron durability is based on the fact that when when it, when a model would go out of action in Kill Team, uh, you roll a dice, and on a one, two, or a three, it receives a flesh wound, uh, which um, it stays in action, but it's at minus one to hit with the flesh wound. Mm. And the next time you roll that dice, you add one to the result. And if the result is four or more, or three or more, if you've already got a flesh wound, etc., then uh, you that that character is out of action, and you roll at the end of the game to find out if they die properly or mm. not right uh necrons their special rule is that on a wound this is like called like the injury roll basically on an injury roll of a six the necron is completely fine <laughs> and even heals all of its flesh wounds like it just gets back together and stitches its wounds back together right which means that a necron is only ever really killed on a four or a five so oh, and uh so how many necrons do you have in your kill team um i had seven but um through various reasons so basically the other cool thing about kill team is you gain xp obviously and your characters level up and, and your specialists you pick new abilities for them but even your kind of line troops level up and gain like all of my necron warriors are at plus one move now so they're like that's randomly assigned which bonus they happen oh, to get this feels like more time and they're very fast i've got some very fast necrons yeah, yeah. um but of them. when that happens they all cost more points so now that I've actually like, because I haven't lost a game and I, I haven't see, lost right. anybody, yeah. I actually field fewer models now, right, right, because I can't afford everyone. Huh. Like my specialists, like I've got level, um, I've got level twos of most of the specialists. Um, so my snipers are really expensive now, and that's really interesting because actually, that feels a bit like a catch-up mechanic in some ways because the bonuses you get are good, yeah, but they're all they're often like, so, well, it depends on the exact specialist, but they're quite situational. Mm. So like. You know, so for example, my leader now is completely immune to shaken tests, which see if they basically freak out. Um, and I'm, I got that one because the next thing in the tree is something I really want. That, that upgrade is actually not very good on Necrons, no. but the next one is very good. So I kind of, it's a bit of a tax, mm. but I still have to pay m m loads more points for him now than I used to. So in a way that's kind of, and I have to take him. So it's kind of an interesting kind of mechanic that if you lose loads of games and you don't get any XP, um, you, you, you're still fielding your more numbers. people in a campaign mm. than, than someone who's doing well. Mm. 
Um, but yeah, so I, I played four games. I've won three and drawn one. I technically won it, but that game was really dumb because it was against, um, Eldar Rangers, basically. So tiny cloak wearing, you know, as your Arnie kind of ranger dudes that want to snipe you from very far away Yeah. versus Necrons. And my particular Necron kill team kind of also wants to just sort of march at you slowly and shoot you and disintegrate you from far away. Mm. And we randomly rolled the scenario where you only score victory points by uh, taking each other out in close combat <laughs> and taking prisoners basically. Mm. And it only counts if you take someone out in close combat and there are no other enemy models adjacent to you and you do it. So a straight up brawl doesn't count. You have to like ambush individual models and take them out. That's tough. Perfect for Tyranids or something like that. Right. But neither of our warbands wanted to engage at that range, but we both had to Mm. if we, if we wanted to think, if we wanted to do anything. And so it started with this kind of like exchange of fire. I just marched at them basically, marched at the robots kind of thing. And then in a completely bizarre series of dice rolls involved me rolling extremely badly on some leadership checks. Um, as soon as I'd gotten to the point where half of my warband had flesh wounds, I then failed my broken warband check, which takes a lot of doing on, on Necrons with yeah. the highest leadership in the game. Basically, I think I rolled a double six for that. And then I managed to roll, fail the shaken test for every single model in my warband. Oh my God. Which meant that if they fail a shaken test, they don't do anything in the subsequent turn. Was they just immobilized? Yeah. And this go, this is going into the final turn of the game based on the turn counter, essentially. Yeah, right. And so it was literally full on like Necron.exe has stopped responding. <laughs> like, we're, like, ooh, like, we're not doing power down. But unfortunately, these uh, Eldar Rangers are so shit in close combat. Yeah. They failed to kill any completely immobile Necrons. <laughs> <laughs> They're just battering. Yeah, exactly. The clank, clank. But like, rifles. Yeah, like, <laughs> slapping pointlessly oh, on the, 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 the rigid metal chassis. Yeah. of the deactivated Necrons. So neither of us scored any points and then the game ended. Mm. So, but there was a rule that whoever has spent the fewest points on their warband wins in the event of a draw. Right. And I had spent 98 points and my opponent had spent a hundred. So technically I did win yeah. despite nothing happened, but I thought that was completely ridiculous. So I demanded <laughs> that we treat it as a draw sure. because on the victory points, it right, was a right. draw. Like were it not for that condition, uh, but that was my first ever game of Kill Team, which was as, as bizarre an ending as you can... That is insane. Yeah, it's just um really, really dumb. Um And then, since then, like, there's lots of things I really like about it, like, but it feels like it's got a lot of, like, the kinds of games you have will vary a lot based on the times of uh, Warband, yeah. warbands you're kind of bringing to bear. Yeah. And I've had sort of easier and harder games. And, and what's cool is like I've played every single time I've played, I've played a different faction and every game has been cool. And I'm the only Necron player in the league. And it feels like, um, it feels very themey for like how this works. So like my second game was against, uh, like an Adeptus Mechanicus, like Skutarii warband, uh, who attempted to kind of form a gun line against me. Mm. And, um, I just, walked at them and like on balance i win that because necrons are just more durable yeah and i focused on spreading out my damage because you have to take those break checks as soon as you have 50 percent or more of your models with wound tokens you don't have to be dead 
dead or with wound tokens. So rather than trying to like focus on individual targets and take them out, I would just spread the damage around the warband and try and break them psychologically, knowing that they're not going to do the same to me. Right. Or it's very unlikely that they do the same to me. Mm. And that was really effective and, and won me that game, basically. And it, but it created this cool mental image of basically this sort of just Necron kind of battle line marching forward. Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, that's extremely Necron, by the way, yeah. I must say. Yeah. Um, and there's this really cool, there's a really cool thing, which is that you treat um, your own models as cover. So, which is ah. unlike other, like, unlike 40k, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, so most warbands can't afford to do this because either you can't afford to hit the casualties because you're a minimum kind of model count kind of thing, like mm. Space Marines, or um, you can't afford to get to that point where your line, your regular dudes are badly wounded and therefore you start having to take break checks and, and shake and tests mm. for your models. But Necrons can. So I realized that my, like, Necron warriors, the kind of generic dudes, um, who I have named Thrall, Vassal, and Helot. Basically, they all have different names for surf. Slave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, they walk in front. They just walk in front of the more valuable specialists that follow behind them. Yeah. And they act as cover kind of both ways, but I don't care because hmm. it's like, I really don't care what happens to these necrons at all. <laughs> like, I really do not give a shit about them. Yeah. And that feels very themey. And the game is so much about cover mm. and so much about line of sight. Like, it feels like a powerful, but quite thematic thing. Yeah. That yeah. I also have this mobile cover, which is called this other Necron. Um, and then, um, I played a game against, uh, Death Watch, Primaris Death Watch, uh, which, um, was pretty cool because they are super tough. Yeah. Like, um, one thing this game does really well is sell the idea of like Adeptus Astartes as just a cut above most things. That's right. Like they have two wounds each, which is huge in kill team. They're really good. Death Watch get to pick special ammo types for the situation. Like it's no, they're, they're special forces. They're basically. very special boys. That's right. And um, <clears throat> I had and um and uh, based on the roll off, it was a scenario where I was protecting my territory against encroaching Death Watch, basically. Mm. And that was based on the roll off at the start. Who gets to choose who attacks and who defends? And honestly, I would have chosen to defend, given the choice. Um. And basically I just played this kind of keep away game of stalling them out to try and prevent them. Cause basically a lot of the scenarios work in this way where after the fourth round or the third round, you roll a dice and there are escalating chances that the game ends. So initially it's like a two up, then it's a three up, then it's right. a four up for the game to end. Hmm. Um, which means that like, if you are attacking, you're on the clock, but you don't know exactly how much time you have which is a really good tension to add mm. to like an attack defense scenario. It's a hurry up mechanic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so that game was really interesting because um, the Death Watch have loads of powerful ammo types, including ammo types that like extend the range of their weapons. Mm. And in a game where half range is very significant because you are a minus one to hit beyond half range, gotcha. the ability to add six inches to the range of your weapon is very, very important. Yeah. So my opponent kind of chose to try and hang back and snipe for two turns and did some damage, but didn't do loads, mm. which was really crippling because I mean, it was just too far away. And so I was just standing on the objectives. But the great thing about that game, um, is, uh, is that it was this, the first time I really got to use my favorite Necron stratagem, uh, which I love. So, uh, you have strategy. So you gain a command point every turn plus an extra command point if your leader is still on the battlefield. And those command points can be spent once per phase in order to re-roll a dice, as in 40k. And then there are a bunch of um, generic stratagems that allow you to do things like supplant the initiative order and stuff. 
there's so many cool mechanics in Kill Team. Like, mm. if you don't want to move a model, you can ready it. And if you, um, so when you get moved from the moving movement phase into the shooting phase, um, the shooting phase is I go, you go, except models that have readied go first. Okay. So if I ready all of my models and you ready none of yours, oh, well. all of my guys shoot first. Huh. If we both have a mix, then we resolve I go, you go between the two ready sets of ready models. Right. And then everybody else. Yeah. So it creates these two tiers of initiative, which is really cool. That's interesting. It means if you're in the right position, if you're, if you're in the position you want to be at the start of your movement phase, you don't have to like not moving becomes an action in mm. a way that it isn't in normal, uh, 40k or yeah. Sigma. it's really really good it feels a bit like overwatch in xcom like yeah that. it is sort yeah. of yeah um although there is overwatch specifically as a mechanic against charging as well it works oh, okay. the same way as it does in 40k oh, you roll and on a six you you hit yeah um so anyway so all that stuff applies um but um and then every faction has its own kind of unique stratagems that often cost you know two or more points to use and um and like because kill team games are so short you're probably never going to have more than like eight points in the entire game. So often one thing I found is that a lot of the games come down to like when you choose to use your points and are, is it a successful or clever use of those points? And that's a really important layer to have on mm. top of the positioning and dice rolling war game stuff. Yeah. Um, Necrons have an ability called mind shackle scarabs. And what this does is you can use it as long as there is an enemy within six inches of a Necron, any Necron. It doesn't matter about line of sight doesn't matter about physical geography. Yeah. And this is because that Necron just, just deploys a beetle that skitters over to this enemy and attempts to take over their brain. And if you roll, you roll 2d6. And if you beat their leadership value, you can then make a shooting attack with that model as if it was yours. Oh shit. And it's the best <laughs> because it means you can do loads of really interesting strategic things with like, cause there's a lot of vertical terrain and line of sight blocking stuff. It's like you leave one warrior six inches away from an important enemy. Mm. You can do things like convince a death watch iron, iron hands. Yeah. To turn around and just shoot his mate in the chest <laughs> with like the most damaging ammo round they have. Yeah. I haven't managed to pull this off yet, but it's a mate. Like plasma is very good in, um, in kill team, mm. but mind shackle is amazing against plasma because you can overcharge it. Which means that oh, if you get the one themselves. to hit, you can kill each other. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 it's like, it's really good. Oh, that's nice. Um, then my most recent game, the final game I played in the, in the series was against, um, uh, my friend Jay, who's the manager of, of Games Workshop in Bath, um, who has like a really terrifying, like, um, I think Hecatrix, like Dark Eldar kind of, um, like witch leader, um, who is converted really beautifully into like a kind of like serpent beast mm. basically yeah. armed with like this pistol that does d6 damage which is huge in kill team mm. actually really interesting about necrons is um when you do when you get hit by like let's say you get hit by a four damage attack but you've only got one health the way that works is with anyone with anyone in the game you roll when you've lost all your wounds you roll a dice for every wound you took and pick the highest value for the injury roll which in the vast majority of cases is going to mean you're completely fucked because it means that yes. if you want to survive it, you have to roll all four underneath. Unless three. you're a Necron and you roll Unless six. Unless you're a Necron and you get any sixes. <laughs> yeah. And, then and you it's fight. like, you're like, I don't care. Yeah, and the Necron, sure. So it means Necrons are very good against high damage weapons, which yeah, is kind of like interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, whereas Death Guard aren't because Death Guard get the six plus ignore, but they have to get four, six up ignores, right? Yeah. Like, whereas Necrons have to get one. Yeah. 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 But Necrons are also weaker against sustained small fire, mm. uh, which is just a neat, oh, it's nice. Isn't good it? number one. Good, simula- sort of 
good simmy numbers. Yeah. Um, but I managed to uh, mind control the big snake from behind a crate, shoot another uh, Drukhari witch in the back of the head uh, with the, the mega pistol, mm. kill her, and also for the first time, kill her in the campaign as well. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. <laughs> like, that must uh, take quite a few dice rolls to actually. Uh, well, so the way that works is at the end of a game you roll a d10 for every model that was taken out of action. Hmm. And on a one, they die permanently. Yep. On a two, they miss the next game. On, I think, a three to an eight, they're fine. Hmm. On a nine, they gain an XP. <laughs> and on a nine or a 10, they gain XP. So you can actually gain XP from being shot, yeah. which is that's, like, it's a one in 10 to permanently die. Yeah, but it was God. really like themey to me that that dark... Eldar actually did die and mm. it's because she was shot in the back of the head by, by her own a, a snake oh being controlled by a scarab beetle being <laughs> controlled by a robot Fantastic. being controlled by a bigger robot further away that is excellent excellent storytelling yeah in a small horrifying um, but I'm quite proud that my like uh, ragtag band of um sort of uh Necron ex-cons mm. are doing well they're doing well yeah so um how long does the campaign last how many, it's how three many? months and oh, okay. it's four games per month there's some sort of like slightly sort of wonky stuff in the way that Games Workshop are are running it because they're really heavily encouraging painting. And I can, you know, like of, of the games that I have played, um, like only one has, no, only two have been against fully painted warbands. Like mm. it's quite rare that people paint their stuff. Yeah. So one rule they've got in place is that for, um, every model you paint in the official Games Workshop campaign, you can recoup two points of terror of resource losses from a, a game you lose, hmm. which means that because I have played or painted seven models so far, yep. if I paint one more model, I literally can't lose. <laughs> okay. Because I've got eight games left yeah. and I painted seven and I haven't lost one yet. Yeah. I see. So I literally can't fail. Hmm. So it's, it's pretty soft as serious tournaments go, hmm. but it's quite a lot of fun for like, just, um, and there are still prizes for like best in faction and stuff like that. Yeah. So sure. good for me being the only Necron. <laughs> I can also not lose for that reason. Um, but like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like it's, it's been a really fun way to kind of just play a bunch of games with people and, 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 uh, see a bunch of different things. And like, it's made me realize that like, I don't know how committed I am to ever really having a 40 K army mm. when kill team exists. Cause it mm. kind of gets apart from tanks, it kind of gets to the core of what I want to do with that setting, which is and knights. And tanks and knights, big mm. things, basically. Big things. Um, like the, the leader's expansion is coming out, the commander's expansion is coming out soon, which adds the ability to take kind of more substantial characters, like librarians and stuff, mm. and cryptics, the Necron, so I'm going to add a cryptic. Um, and when that stuff's in place, like, yeah, like, just really good. We should play some. You should finish it. I'd love to. Just grab some Space Marines and we'll play. Yeah, because I, I, I've got enough Primaris just to put up a basic, really basic Primaris squad just to get yeah. used to the rules and stuff. And yeah, if I get into it, I would definitely like to have a nice... I've got a train as well, so... Yeah, the train is... is what it comes to like, so that's, it's worth mentioning sort of like the release schedule and pattern that they've adopted for Kill Team. Yeah, because it's, 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 it's unusual. Yeah. And it's insane because there's so much so much stuff so like you get terrain and a kill team in a given box yeah uh as and an there, are, there are dedicated terrain packs as well that yeah. come with special rules 
And then there are kind of, so the, the, there are kill team zones, aren't there, right? That have different rules. And yeah. So like the kill team zone boxes, um, which I think are about 50 quid for a bunch of basically the 40k terrain kits, like the Mechanicus stuff sure. and things, mm. plus some rules. There are the, the warband or the kill team kits, which is like, it's basically the equivalent of like a box of elite infantry for a given faction, mm. really, but on colored plastic, if that matters sure. to you. Um, plus some terrain, plus cards and tokens specifically for that faction. Yeah. So I genuinely might get the Necron box because mm. I want some more immortals and I might do some immortals in a different thing, but also you get the terrain and you get a bunch of other stuff and it is cheaper than buying those things separately. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, then there are the multiple big core sets. So this is Skitaria. Like honestly, the core set to get if you are interested is the Skitaria versus Gene Stealer Cults one, mm. just because the amount of terrain it comes with is absolutely nuts. Like, um, the other, like, so the other core set is the, um, it was the one they initially announced, I think, which is the, uh, like rogue trader set where it's, uh, rogue traders versus kind yeah. of Nurgle mutants and demons. Those models are gorgeous. <laughs> so the advantage of that one is beautiful monopose models. The other one is literally just the standard Skitari ice brew and the sk- standard gene stealer cult sprue. Yeah. But it also comes with like, a hundred quid's worth of amazing yeah, 40k terrain, which is like, and a, and a board to play on. The, the, um, to clarify the, the Rogue Trader set comes with a board as well, but it, um, mm. it's, it's set on a spaceship, so it's much more corridor based and kind of narrow mm. than the kind of urban combat thing it does generally. So that's all there. And then, um, yeah. And then there's the commander's expansion, which is just a book and cards and stuff for a new kind of tier of thing. But they're also about to release commander's expansions, which are basically character models as they would previously have been released. So like the Primaris librarian model, for example, Mm. but with a bunch of extra cards and tokens and things to tie them into kill team. Mm. Like some of this stuff I think is very much like, um, it's interesting because I think it's quite cash grabby. If like, it's not worth buying those. If you have those models from other sources, sure. But it's quite easy to like stay within the kill team ecosystem and sort of end up with a 40k army. Like yeah. it seems quite, mm. seems quite clever what they are doing yeah. with it. Yeah. Some intention there. The, um, the amount of, so I've seen, I think you've got all of your terrain sort of built, if not painted. I've built it, but not painted, but it's on colored plastic. So I feel down pressure really to paint it quickly. Yeah. Uh, but it's great. having seen it, like it's, it's massive. Like yeah. you, I, you, back in the day, you'd spend hundreds of pounds to get. That restraint. I think I now have about as much 40k terrain as I have Age of Sigma terrain. Mm. Actually, no, I have more, mm. which is mad because it was one box. From that box. <laughs> yeah, that one exactly. box. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it builds almost like a sort of a, a crumbled corner of a vast cathedral. Like mm. it is, it's really tall as well as, you know, being multi-tiered. Yeah. And it's modular as well. So you can yeah. not glue bits together and assemble them. I think I've spoken about this in the podcast before, but yeah, it's really, really I haven't actually played with that at all. I've only played with the stuff that have been assembled in the store. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's perfect for, mm. you can play out of the box, That's which fantastic. is rare for any of these games. That's so rad. Yeah. It's real, real good. Um, God, that, that, you know, that's, that's everything we've been playing. Oh no, we played some AOS. <laughs> yeah, we played an AOS game. Yeah. So I guess the, the main AOS thing this month, um, before we get onto the hobby stuff briefly, um, is the main thing that's, but so, uh, I don't think we can get too much in the weeds on this in terms of battle report stuff, mm. but we've both had slightly different experiences of our armies changing because you've had sort of, uh, your secretaries finished up and they're great. Oh yes. <laughs> um, good. and I have had all of my war scrolls changed. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so the Beasts yeah. of Chaos, which is the kind of like, yeah, like Beastmen battle tome came out mm. and changed all of the Zangor units. Um, and they have since FAQ this to clarify that this does override the Disciples of Zinch versions of these. Yeah. So Zangor have changed substantially. Zangor Enlightened and Skyfires have changed from points changes to lots of rebalancing. And this is about five weeks after you'd finished painting yeah your, it is your block of and it, uh, it renders the way i designed and built them sort of bad now but mm. not i can i i was a little bit disappointed at first but i made my peace with it because actually <laughs> i think um i won't go into exhaustive detail but i think the changes they have made are exactly how i would have preferred them to have been designed in the first place yeah like i think i have lamented on this podcast before that zangor given how detailed they are as models um were designed in a way that made it desperately suboptimal to run less than 30 of them hmm. at a time that felt like just punishment basically hmm. um now 10 is viable 20 is probably optimal 30 is highly situational hmm. which makes me having 30 of them kind of like oh well i did that i guess but you know like um they i think Goodbye, i think they're a bit cleaner Goodbye, as a design now the box of 10 I know I could get another box of 10. I'm thinking about it. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Workshop's master plan. Yeah. Is working um, again. But nonetheless, right. Like mm. that's happened, but enlightened are great. Now Skyfires are garbage, but that means that flamers have, it's flamers time to shine. Everybody. Also, um, Zagor still good. They're still good. They're yeah. S- but, they're still legit. They're great. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, so, um, and we played, so, uh, uh, I'll talk about hobby stuff in a minute, but we played a game with one new unit on my part, which was from the Zangor Shaman. Mm. Um, and what we're going to do, so to clarify, because obviously at this point, um, the miniatures monthly meetup is a month away, Ooh. which is very exciting. And at that meetup, we're going to play a big narrative game, which is the, yes. the details of which are coming together. Mm. And so what I was thinking we might do between now and then, because obviously next month's regular podcast is going to be a little bit delayed by our own meetup mm. because we'll be away on the weekend when we normally be recording. Yes. But what I'd quite like to do in the meantime is do uh, another AOS battle report, kind of as a standalone podcast, mm. but that sets the stage for the narrative game yeah. that is coming. But the game we played also sets the stage because what we're going to do at this point, which I think is kind of fun, is I think I've mentioned in the past that the plan is for our narrative game between you and I, Tom, to be affected by the outcome of games that run simultaneously. Mm. Uh, everything from skirmish games to big games of AOS to even Silver Tower, potentially, yeah. if people want to run it. Um, and so the games we're playing now are setting the criteria for those other games, not the central one, mm. which is interesting. So in the game we played, we played the protect the wards scenario from malign sorcery, which involves, which involved my sort of, uh, Zinch now predominantly Zinch mortals army clashing against a series of magical wards erected by the stormcast to protect a particular city, which might become significant in a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really interesting game for a bunch of reasons um because i think like the best games of age of sigma we've played we both thought we were losing the entire time (laughs) (laughs) this is the beauty of scenario play yeah and i think we've had so much pleasure out of the malign portent scenarios it's weird like the the released new edition the released Mm. general's handbook um for this year but the ones we've actually played and gotten the most out of has been these fantastic malign portent scenarios that the Obviously, would not be suitable for competitive play in a lot of ways, but a really fun objective-based scenarios with strong narrative drive, and uh, this this one was no different. Um, so, like, it, it, what was it called? It was called Protect the Wards. Protect the Wards, and so 
basically, um, Stormcast have our own territory on the long side of the board, uh, in our deployment zone. And there are two wards that. Yeah. So it, it would be else. three on a six by four, but we adapted it by four by four for a right. thousand point game. So that's worth saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, imagine, uh, a one foot by four foot sort of like <laughs> territory. And then. So, yeah. It was, it was two, two by two territories. No, oh, sorry, two one by twos. That's it. Yeah. On your yeah, territory. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So, so, um, my entire deployment zone was four by one. Yes. And, yes. um, the ward, uh, and then divide that in half and one ward belongs to each basically. And, uh, the interesting about this scenario, and I've not seen this in any other AOS scenario is that your army could not go into that space while the wards are up. And the scenario is all about, uh, Chris's army coming and breaking the wards in order to occupy the space and in order to occupy my, uh, deployment yeah, zone, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the wards in this case being another rare thing for an AOS scenario, uh, like physical terrain objects mm. that count as enemy mm. units. Right. So I have to actually physically destroy them. They have yeah. a save. They can't move, but they have a save value. Um, you have a command ability that allows you to give them an, uh, an invulnerable save. Mm. Like, they're, they're quite tough already. So 15 wounds. 15 yeah. wounds. Four. Was three three up save. Saved? Yeah. So yeah, they're like properly hard, like mini monsters. They can't attack back, but you have to do a lot of wounds into them to get them down. Yeah. And yeah, so it's an interesting one. You, you had a very interesting deployment zone, a giant triangle. Yeah, a big chevron. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, again, led by the Cursling. Mm. And it was really interesting, like, game of... Because it was a relatively fast game. Like, Thousand Point Games mm. of Age of Sigmar are interesting because they can be very matchup dependent. And I think in this case, the scenario... I think two things. One, the scenario, but also our kind of attitude to the game meant that this was more even than it might be. Like, yeah. when I played Thousand Point Games of AOS before, as we've discussed, sometimes it's Lord of Change and some friends versus whatever mm. big monster you've brought. Yep. I don't think um 1,000 Point AOS is terribly good competitively because, it like, it, you get so hard countered so easily by yeah. just a big monster. And if you want to run a bar- balanced infantry army, you're going to lose probably, like, just a guaranteed amount of your games just because someone will bring a monster that you can't deal with. Yeah. And it's very hard to build. Uh, it's, it's fun to build lists a thousand points for AOS against someone who's not going to just go Nagash and some direwolves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or something like that. Like I think, it's fun. It's fun to build against each other. I think it'd be interesting to try and maybe this is something we could do is like actually codify what the rules are for good thousand points. Mm. Like I think you can have behemoth units, but I don't think they can be heroes. I think mm. that's a good general rule, like rule of thumb. Like you can take a behemoth, but it can't be a hero. Mm. Um, like you, you can't, you can take a wizard, but it can't be a behemoth. Like that kind of thing. Like, but it probably goes hand in hand. I think it comes down to like those particular things. Um, maybe no war scroll battalions is a really good rule for mm. thousand points as well. So you can't kind of min max in that way. Yeah. Like it works really well when you build the kind of thing you imagine as an army being like a couple of yep. units of infantry, some heroes, a cavalry unit, a bit of range, a bit of range, but not too much. Yeah, like that yeah. kind of balance yeah. is really good. Uh, yeah. If it, if it looks like an army, it's probably going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Game, right? Yeah. <laughs> if it looks like a man on a dragon and his four mates, <laughs> you've probably done it wrong. But yeah. Yeah. Say. yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd be interested to codify a kind of, it, I mean, surely like Warhammer Rules writers have struggled with this forever because, yeah, uh, this is why battle line tax exists. This is why it's a, the concept of mm. tax is, exists in war games is that, uh, tax is a way of f- forcing people to build armies that look like armies and that sort of have enough people and units and different, you know, 
units with different roles to actually behave like an army on the battlefield and make it make for an interesting game. And it's a shame that, I mean, tax is a kind of community invented word that yeah. uh, attaches a negative connotation to a thing that is probably going to make the eventual game you play better. Yeah. Uh, so it, it feels like, you know, let's re- <laughs> let's think of a different word for it and also maybe some rules that are, are a little bit... Well, I think, I think, flexibility, I think these thing. limitations bring out the best in the game, mm. honestly. Like, mm. um, and that was true of this game. Like, it was interesting because I, I had a hundred points spare and I thought about taking some endless spells. And I thought about taking some screamers and ended up taking two chaos spawn because I like the models. Yeah. And it's like, they're really fun. And they ended up being really fun. Basically, two chaos spawn ended up in a fight with some judicators for the entire game <laughs> while also slapping this one object trying to slap one of the other yeah, with their wards down yeah. and the judicators couldn't shift this chaos spawn and the chaos spawn couldn't really do much because they're so random mm. bless them mm. but it was quite fun and then, meanwhile on the other flank you have this kind of huge melee yeah, versus yeah. zangor versus sequiturs which is a really like that feels like the kind of like like 20 zangor versus 10 sequiturs mm. feels like a surprisingly one-to-one matchup oh. given the relative points costs of those things but yeah like, oh the sequiturs are good they are really good they're really good they're really good when you start stacking buffs on them yeah and um it's my first uh i experimented with a prayer called bless weapons where every time you roll a six to hit you get an extra hit basically yeah. and that is super i think that that prayer is rad especially when you know a mm. lot of the, Apparently, so, uh, I was talking to you about this, and the war scroll for sequiturs, if you roll them with swords, they get three attacks each. Oh, dang. Three attacks each, plus weapons, they're four plus to hit, but wow, I think there's, a, a, I think there's potential in some combos for sequiturs being amazing. Uh, and also, cause you can also channel their etheric energy into their shields, which get, lets them reroll saves. Yeah. Or into their swords, which lets them reroll hits. So, three attacks each, rerolling hits, sixes become more hits mm. you start to see like some serious combos for a unit that costs i think about 120 points like it's, it's a right, battle yeah. line they're amazing they're amazing they're yeah. really really strong i'm i'm like i'm really taken with how my army feels now as well now that i've got so much more mortals and arcanite stuff rather than yeah demons. like my it's hero much more fun to play is so much quicker it's much more fun to play against i have to say because there's a bit of everything and there's a, there's a lot more movement. There's a lot more fighting. Is it? Yeah. So like, I like, I like that. Yeah. I actually have melee units. Like mm. I had some pink horrors and like, it was interesting. I think over the course of both this and night vault, you've learned not to hit the demons. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Cause yeah. the demons pop and turn into more demons. Yeah. They're and like, shit. and so like, here's me saving my, you know, I use some combos that are quite fun, like sacrificing the demons to get better casting rolls and then now that there's no limit on expanding the size of a unit with summoning like inflating the original pink horror unit past its original size and yeah, stuff yeah. like all that stuff which might would have felt very edge casey in the original game now feels much more balanced just because the army is better balanced mm. and i think i think that's like it's not like my army before was like min max it was just all demons and like the demon side of zinch i think specifically is really weird mm. like every single unit is weird in some way and it helps a lot to have this core of like freaky birdmen who are themselves weird but behave in a different archetype rather yeah. than like everything about a demon zinch army is about range control and playing keep away while you mortal wound things to death with spells because yeah. that's all you can do yeah, yeah like everything else you have is suboptimal in every regard it's just that if you can survive long enough the, the wizards will kill everything which is the way the army works yeah unless you unless you 
do what everyone did and run sky fires and but, right uh, that's what i mean at that point you're going back into arkanites and it's you yeah know, i'm talking about the sort of the demon just the pure thing demon that i was doing build. sure sure yeah that's yeah Zinch is I, th- I kind of feel bad about the Zinch book because it was almost awesome i think like yeah. I, I think it was super there's such a binary arrangement of good shit stuff in that book yeah so there's stuff that's just fucking amazing that everyone took and bullied the tournament scene with it. And that was Skyfires, that was with a Lord of Change and loads of pink horrors, um, that could, you know, respawn to form massive kind of, uh, flesh lines that would soak up charges and that kind of stuff. And that would like just dominate, but it'd also be the same for everyone. Yeah. And it was also like, but if you didn't want to run that type of army, you just run Arcanites who were shit <laughs> and then you'd run Zangor who were all right but not fine the points, but yeah. you know not efficient and then so you had this kind of like two-tier list within that book and uh I think it was a real shame because the model ranges were awesome mm. uh the the art was beautiful the book itself is gorgeous and everything about it apart but I felt like the rules writing was just like yeah like bit. I even like Destiny Dice as a mechanic it's oh, just right, yeah, that yeah. like yeah, I think, I think they just overtuned the wrong things. Like, I think actually yeah. the army's in a good place now. Mm. Like, as, as sort of galling as some of these changes are in terms of how they affect the stuff I already had, mm. like, I like the whole army now. Like, I actually, I did something I wasn't thinking about doing, but I, I went and rebought the book on the app, which is a, basically so that I can get access to the rules for battalions and spells and things in the app, mm. rather than having to Cross have the book to the hand. And that does mean having now paid, it's not quite twice because it's cheaper on the app, but like, it's like an extra 15 quid or something, but given how much it's my one army. Mm. So it's like, I'm not buying other books, you know? So I did that sort of on a whim, but it's, it's, I realized that with the stuff I'm currently adding to my army, I can run almost every battalion in each book. Uh, not quite all of them. Like mm. the one that involves three Lords of change. Oh, I right, can't yeah. do, yeah. but like I can do a lot of them and I kind of want to, like, I want to try running different variants of the army, probably at a thousand points where I try different, War Scroll Battalions that mm. are not amazing, but interesting because I think like that's kind of, you know, there's a fun one where the Lord of Change can use any unit of flamers as an output for spells. Mm. So they kind of fire through the flamers, which is kind of an interesting well, kind of yeah, thing. But it involves taking flamers <clears throat> that are quite expensive mm. and not amazing. So it's like They're very fragile. Yeah. yeah. So like that, I think sounds interesting. And I feel mm. like now that the extremes of the army have been reined in, I feel a bit more fr- freedom to uh, enjoy kind of playing around with the rules that are there. Mm. Like I don't anticipate getting a new Zinch book for a long time. So I'm kind of happy to just sort of, have that army, you know, and just sort of experiment with it basically and constantly mm. run different things. Yeah. And yeah. I think even the competitive options now look and feel a lot more sort of, uh, balanced, mm. you know, in terms of what they can and can't do. Yeah. I think, oh man, it's kind of tough because we've spoken before on this podcast about how, you know, we could have our own games in a bubble and they're great and the armies, the books work beautifully and, you know, the, the, unit rules work great and they create really interesting games and a lot of even close situations but there's always that sense from the outside of like the perception of each particularly mm. that must that must play into how you think of your army it does like i guess i've always just done me like mm. it does suck it sucks to go to an event and have someone roll their eyes when they see your army yeah particularly um, because they are probably like i've had a guy running a cunning ruck 
roll their eyes <laughs> upon seeing my thing. Right, right. And it's like, you know, I feel like when you enter a competitive space, you have to be rise above that instinct mm. somewhat. Like to assume that other people are running the cheesy thing and you are fine. But I like, isn't it? Did you find it hard to like part those worlds completely? So doesn't that perception of your army from that context feed back into, you know, uh, like our games and stuff? Somewhat, although I never ran that stuff, I guess. Yeah. And like, like, I mean, I appreciate that in the, you know, the year and a bit we've been doing this podcast, like we've definitely had the games where like, you know, I think the first game I, I ever won, <laughs> like after a long time, like it was very hard for me to really maintain this sense of like, I need to stop running this bullshit army because I never won ever. Mm. So there was like, oh, a, sure, yeah. right. But then when I did win and it was because of basically like magic stuff that, you know, was for the longest time, a very one-sided system. And, mm. and we've, we've discussed ad nauseum, the, the ways that that system isn't satisfying if both sides don't have wizards for example mm. like again aos second edition makes that a lot more fun and as you have additional knight encantors and things in your army yeah like even just that one knight encantor with her automatic unbind once a game she always does work you're involved in that system yeah. a lot more than you used to be it's you're playing a game of you have a veto mm. once like you can basically f like we've had games that have hinged on me having a bad magic phase mm. and you can force that pretty much once per game yeah um that's really cool i really like that um, but I suppose whether or not I, yeah, I suppose if, if the, if the question is whether or not I ever felt like I was doing the wrong army or something because of that kind of broader reputation, mm. I don't think so. Cause I really love the models and like, I like the vibe of a Zinch army. Like it'll always be my favorite, like chaos God, I think. And so yeah. like, you know, I think we've always played it in a way that's relatively thematic and it's never been sort of, it's never been about simply wiping the other person off the table before they have a chance to do anything. Mm. But uh, I guess my question is, is more that was your army sort of, or your perception of your army tainted by that attitude across the board? Not really. Cause like it felt like something that's happening to other people. Mm. Like I think maybe it helped that I didn't get, uh, like a big old hipster didn't get sky fires until they weren't cool anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, I, I never had the, the really amazing min max stuff mm. in the army anyway. Yeah. yeah. Really? Like I was running screamers and flamers, but that's the thing. So I remember like, so we went to like 1000 yeah. tournament a big and, um, I remember us going around and like, I, I saw people going up and going, Oh, it's just each like literally just like, without even talking to you just being like you know yeah giving you that reaction right up out of the bat you know yeah well yeah and 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 like i think that's just called being a dick <laughs> i mean because like your army wasn't crazy like it was just uh, you know it was like i had a lot of change in a thousand points which maybe is is questionable but hey like, i fought vordry in a fucking zombie dragon yeah i mean i fought a giant monster in every game I played. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah yeah it was like well, it's the way to do a thousand points it seems like yeah in a competitive setting yeah, yeah, yeah definitely yeah. Um, and I mean, you had the Salston Prime in yours, right? I mean, the famously, the worst you <laughs> 300 points. I could but, have run a, I could have run a Star Drake. You could have done. But uh, if you painted it at that time, you No, I did not have it painted. Um, not that that stopped other people from. No, 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 we can be better now. But like, um, <laughs> like, yeah, and that is really disheartening, but I sort of, I got through it. <laughs> like, yeah. at the same time, like, you know, I don't know. I knew that it was like an army that, like I had put care into, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think sure. one thing it reinforces is like, 
I, I was not running, obviously that, that particular tournament had no painting requirement, but even the tournaments I've been to that have had a painting requirement, like, you know, I got, I remember I got the same reaction at London GT to like, I was running a change host, which was one of the more competitive Zinch builds. I wasn't running it in the min maxi way, but I was running it. Yeah. And I loved change host. I thought it was really fun. Yeah. But, um, cool, cool rules. But like I got a best painted nod and that was partly cause like I put, uh, you know, a lot of effort into the army. So it's like, I felt like you could kind of justify, like you could rise above some of the stigma hmm. by having put a demonstrable effort into this. Like I hadn't shown up with like a million sky fires that I had airbrushed three different colors sure. to get past the painting requirement on a technicality. Right. Like, you know, that's not, that's power gaming. Like hmm. what I had done is meticulously paint bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm kind of quite glad. I, I, so I think the new uh, sacrosanct chamber is really strong. Yeah. And I think its power is undiscovered in terms of the combos that you can create between particularly for secretors and evocators. Yeah. And a lot of the existing, um, spells, particularly realm spells and realm, uh, artifacts and things. But Stormcast for, you know, they get a lot of hate for just being the space marines of the fantasy, mm. uh, yeah. zone. But I've never felt that to be a problem for me. Incidentally, Space Marines <laughs> of the Fantasy Zone is the name of my prep album. <laughs> Space Marines of the Fantasy Zone. Stormcast. Uh, it's like a fucking jazz <laughs> prog metal album. Oh, I love it. Totally. That. Sorry, I've derailed you. Go on. Sorry. Uh, Mike Devnam, if you're out there. Yeah. <laughs> please do this for us. Yeah. Please, please don't it's like actually a dream, do It's that like a dream theater thing. album, basically. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I bet that's all Sigmar hears in his head when he's- Or dream theater. Yeah, he's, he's crafting. No, oh, God. <laughs> Crafting his forges. No, he's, he's, he's all day. It's Wagner all day. <laughs> really? Va- yeah, totally. Right. Like. Interesting undertones there from. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> the oh, other yeah. space marines of the fantasy zone. We just established this. <laughs> yeah. That's a good. Very good point. Um, I like that. That was like, um, that was like, um, we, we just did the question section before we got to the question section. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was going to say actually, um, competitively. Uh, there's not really been, um, Stormcast seem quite bad now, which is, then, uh, I don't think they are bad now. Like, that's the thing. I think, I think there's, there's potential in the Stormcast lists at the moment, but they, um, apart from a few, like, Hammer Strike Force, which was a battalion that was really fierce, where, it was like, it you, yeah, <laughs> does anyone order a hundred liberators? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, you'd fly in some prosecutors and then they'd drop, uh, two units of 10 paladins within three mm. inches away and then they're not going to fail their charges so th- there was some brutal stuff at, uh, like in the early days of stormcast but they never gained that zinch reputation and it's interesting that uh i think destiny dice particularly is a mm. as a, f- a, a feel mechanic not i don't think i don't mind destiny dice having played against it a lot like you can work around it and play around it and you expect you mean it's, to do it but it's visible uh, information uh, yeah yeah, exactly. right? yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah at the beginning of the game i roll nine dice <laughs> and you, you know i have these nine dice yeah right. I, I think i think if you don't know zinch army you don't know what those ones can do yeah pink horrors and that kind of stuff and that can feel bad but like once you're used to it, like it's not that bad, really. Yeah, the thing is, it's, like, it's good. It's like strong. It's yeah. strong, but it's not game ruining. Strong, but uh, I feel like that a lot of these mechanics have actually fed into a kind of feel bad vibe around each that doesn't exist for Stormcast, even though Stormcast had. Yeah, I think maybe that was the thing. Is like they they sort of, um, if you think about it, at the end of the day, all war games and all games workshop games are about to some extent chance and mm. you know. Um, a very, very good players will, uh, 
try and entirely control the kind of chance of the game and, and play only into situations where they have some form of advantage. Yeah. Zinch's theme, it, you know, as the, the great kind of manipulator of fate is about tweaking chance to your advantage at key points in the game, mm. which is extremely thematic and kind of, you know, if that chaos god was going to enrage you for any reason, it's kind of why they should piss you off. Mm. But it's, it somehow gets to the core of something that everyone wants to kind of, I don't know if maybe it gets to the core of some kind of psychology behind war games. Like, you know, I've played, mm. I played X-Wing for a really long time and learned in that time to appreciate what it meant when I got frustrated about my own dice or what it meant when my opponent got frustrated about their dice and become far more Zen about dice, Mm. you know, become kind of to understand that things go both ways. Like you have hot games, you have, you have hot moments. You are primed to notice the moments when things go well for you. Sorry, to not notice the moments when things are going well and to really notice when it doesn't go well. And I I wonder if you're right that the fact that Zinch can manipulate that even just a little bit Mm -hmm. with the Destiny dice, even though that is perfectly public information, and even though it is itself a dice roll, all it is is you roll nine dice at the beginning of the game and you get to choose where those dice go, which is very powerful because you can put optimal results in optimal places. But there's going to be a Zinch player in the world who's rolled nine twos at the beginning of the game (laughs) and has nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're rubbish. Like it's still a, a dice mechanic. Um, if anything, it rewards knowing when those dice are warranted and when they're not mm. based on the odds of everything else that's happening. Like even though it allows you to supplant a single dice roll and, and appreciate you have to commit them before you roll the dice. So you're not rolling and then substituting You're mm. saying this, this matters. Like I can't take a chance on this. Yeah. Like it, it rewards really efficient understanding of when it when you know when is a four up not a four up when it potentially implies some other role that's going to be important for you right Mm. something like that like that all seems very thematic and appropriate to me but maybe it's just the fact that you are circumventing the sacred random number generator system (laughs) even briefly creates this sense that it's all nonsense i don't know i think so there was a moment in this uh in this game which we've drifted away from the game itself but yeah of course um so i got my sequiturs into your general mm. and they they rolled as you know had loads of rerolls on the weapons on their great weapons and they did like four or five wounds through and then you committed like four or fives or something i think i created like almost all of my good destiny dice yeah, yeah so you just went oh all this bosh um He's, he saves all that and so he's going to stay alive for another round and it was ultimately inc- inconsequential because he like, survived on one wound i think yeah, yeah but but it was because like you deployed i think four destiny dice to actually ablate wounds basically um, yeah and so if i was if i first started playing and was encountering as each army relatively new that would feel terrible like, i didn't really mind but I, that would feel terrible because it's like oh, I've, I've i've got my charge in i've done everything and now just no. Zinch yeah. says no. The magic man says no. The magic says, which is very Zinch, right? Uh, but also I, like, now I'm, um, now having played against Zinch a lot, I, I, I could see you had it and knew that that was a possibility at any time. And a lot of playing against Zinch is bleeding their destiny dice. It's like you've got to put them into uh, in positions where they have to spend destiny dice. Yeah. So that later on in the game, you can actually come back and do stuff. Spells, yeah, exactly. Like uh, by denying them the pool, you've, you know, changed a lot about, you know, mm. denies each lot of power. And also, I think the, the other th- part of it is that, uh, AOS games go to the fifth round. 
Mm. They go all the way to the fifth round every time. And I was feeling really ill. I really didn't want to play the fifth, <laughs> fifth round this time. But we rolled some key rolls to figure out how it played out. And it really was in, like, it was in play until the very, very end. Yeah. And, and ironically, if I'd had some of those Destiny dice for that fifth round... Some guaranteed run rolls, yeah, guaranteed exactly. charges, some yeah. charge rerolls would have been massive and might have actually won you the game. Yeah. Uh, so... I lost this game, to clarify. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, we did a poor job of describing the blow, 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 but we played it a few weeks ago. ago. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, like, Destiny dice are fine, you just have to manage them. And also understand that you need to play to the fifth round. You just yeah. gotta play all the I way. I think that's a good, you know, obviously if people don't play against each a lot, then a lot of this discussion is not gonna be mega relevant, but, mm. like, I think this is a good attitude to take into AOS generally, is that, or any war game, is that there are there are bullshit things, obviously, and if you're playing against someone who's been maxing, then that's going to happen. Mm. But broadly speaking, broadly speaking, everything from dice rolls to rules shakes out in the wash. Mm. Like every army has access to powerful stuff, and there's a lot of individual moments in a game where something feels a little bit bad because you're kind of surprised by some powerful interaction, like mm. the amount, like you know. You spooked me into using all those destiny dice on defense because I charged my big beefy general in and was about to get annihilated by three line troops <laughs> right. with a buff on them, yeah. right? Mm. Like, and not just annihilated, like, I, he only survived that turn on one health, mm. even with all the destiny dice I was expending. Mm. And I only did that in order to potentially allow him to cast again if I got a double, if, if you didn't get a double turn, which you did. Mm. So, like, you know, it was a gamble, basically. Yeah, sure, a big sure. gamble. And, like, that's the game is full of that stuff and i think you almost have to kind of go in with this attitude of like there are some like it's a fast-paced game you're going to get hit as hard as you hit Hmm. and if you aren't like you have to kind of foster whatever mental state you require in order to be like okay cool that happened i am about to do something cool back Hmm. rather than i think I don't know. I think there's a sort of, there's a, a mental state, like, a, oh, I'm losing mental state. That yeah, kicks in yeah. Whenever you that's start really to take any losses, it's, really and it's like, no, we are both losing. Like mm. that's, and that's what, maybe what I said at the top of this chat, but like, you know, it almost a sign of a good game was us both going like, oh, fuck, I think I'm oh, losing God. this. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How am I going to pull this back? Yeah. And no one quite, yeah, the game state was always in flux until the, the final turn really. Yeah. Um, yeah, damn. It was a good game. It was a good game. And yeah, I think we'll play another one and then, and then that'll be the, the, the scene set for a big smash up in Cardiff. Yeah. Which is very exciting. And we're hoping to, um, as Chris said earlier, just tie some exciting and hopefully like just simple enough rules <laughs> yeah. to uh, games around us so that, you know, your games will affect our game and we'll sort of come to a, you know, a head in our grand the, story. The kind of the idea is that it might be impossible for me and Tom's game to end yes. until the results of those other games are established. I mean, I mean, that does make it impossible because we're going to be fielding very large armies. Yeah. And but, but this is going to be an all day thing. It's going to be, oh, it will, yeah. but we've only got like so many hours, like how many, how many hours this place? About is eight to 10. Eight we'll be to okay. 10. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll be okay, Tom. We'll, we'll be okay. We'll do it. Um, like, we're going to have, so we're going to have rules, for example, like, um, one of the side battles is going to take place for the fate of the Stormkeep mm. that is being used to channel souls back to Azir from the yeah. central game. Yeah. Which, so if it falls, Tom loses his reinforcements. So I which can't, is huge. I can't bring the dudes back. I can't keep but Otherwise, you can bring them back all the time. Yeah. So, uh, so the way we're leaning at the moment and probably the way we're going to go is that, um, your victories and, uh, will switch off abilities for our armies as we're in this kind of attritional titanic yeah. scrap in the middle of uh in the middle of the field 
Uh, and so hopefully your results turn to turn will matter and, you know, affect our game. So an equivalent for that for me, which I'm considering, although we have to consider the balance of this because it's nuts, is that at the beginning of the game, um, so Zinch gains a faint point, a fate point, which is used to summon demons hmm. every time a spell is cast hmm. on the battlefield, f- friend or foe. <coughs> at the beginning of our game, in addition, so Tom will get his infinite re- re- reinforcements from the Stormkeep. There'll be some other scenario or scenarios that affect the fact that I gain fate points from every game that's being played, <laughs> not just ours. Yeah. So every There's single, so all pool. of the magic everywhere is creating resources for me. Yeah. So I'm going to probably ask every player to like report a tally every turn of how many <laughs> oh spells God. have been cast, mm. which it's as nuts as the Stormcast coming back constantly, right? Like mm. it'll just be complete. And it'll mean that my army slowly gets replaced with demons, basically. Yeah. Which is very thematic. But if that gets switched off, suddenly I'm in the, I'm in the shit. <laughs> so that's the idea. And I hope it'll be really fun. And that'll basically furnish us a really mad battle report. <laughs> yeah. Episode. The ultimate. So it, we haven't had like a full proper battle report this episode, but the next one is going to be wow yeah it's going to be the biggest battle yeah report. it's going to be and that's going like, to be thanks because you and i are going to be well. playing like about a four thousand point game of aos oh, it's good we're going to put everything down chris yeah I'm, I'm putting fucking everything down you better realize the star drake's in there the prime's in there my infantry's yeah. in there i want to get my evocators painted then just so they could be on the field with my sequiturs yeah it's going to be great it's going to be great it's going to be amazing i'm really looking forward to cardiff yeah so if you uh on that note before we move on to questions if you are interested in um, attending our meetup in Cardiff on the weekend of the 17th, 18th of November, mm-hmm. I believe I'm getting that right. And if I'm getting it wrong, it's the one that's closest to that. Um, then uh, please do email us at events and create, create com. There are, I think, limited spaces available. I'm going to, I've just been, just gotten back from America and I'm going to be uh, confirming mm. places and uh and so on uh very soon um pretty much everyone everyone who's already emailed has a space but we're approaching our limit of, of 40 people so which is great yeah it's um, incredible if you are interested additionally obviously we are supporting everything from x-wing to adeptus titanicus to 40k to kill team whatever Absolutely. you want to play yeah. we have the space for everything but um if you're interested particularly in playing in this narrative game then in addition to just emailing to register your interest it's worth also letting me know what kind of army you're planning on bringing mm-hmm. the faction and the points value or skirmish, etc. because we are matching things up along those lines. Mm-hmm. And the good thing so far is we are in a position where I think we have an order army for every other kind of army. <laughs> so it's probably going to be everybody versus order. Yes. That's but, perfect. Yeah. But like, so we're going to have some fun scenarios. So like mm-hmm. it may be that that storm keep is not under siege from another chaos army, but from a like a marauding orc war that happens to have been redirected into it by the machinations of the master of fate, like <laughs> which is going to be really fun. That's right. Yeah. Though I guess if people are coming along in pairs and they just want to play it amongst themselves, yeah, absolutely completely yeah, fine no, as well. Seriously, no, this is not mandatory. This yeah, is just yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just folly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a, oh, it's going to be so much fun. Um, and it's in Cardiff, Cardiff, an awesome city, and there's going to be uh, we don't have like you know podcast plans but we're going to do socials and we'll be hanging yeah, out there'll be a social on a saturday night um and like firestorm the venue has a bar so mm. um and food facilities and a big shop so we're going to be you know 
it'll, it's basically just a big hangout. Really. Yeah, it's, for, totally. And, you know, Chris, I'll be around for the whole weekend just so please come up and say hello. Um, cause y'all are awesome. And it's yeah. been super lovely doing this podcast and seeing the community that sprung up around it. Oh, that was the most outro style intro to the question section. Yeah, we still got some stuff left. So, um, bring it. All right. Shall we do some questions? Yeah, go on then. All right. Uh, our first question comes from Alex who writes, hello. Uh, Chris of Change and Tom of Iron. Allegedly, the probably apocryphal Angron is named after Angry Ron, a Nottingham bouncer who was reportedly quite fierce. Is that true? I doubt it, but it's a great story. What is known is that when GW were designing the original Epic, they ran out of resources to be able to put the planned Eldar miniatures in. Instead, they came up with the idea of a civil war, letting them simply double the existing Imperium miniatures. Mm. This led to the creation of the Horus Heresy, something which has defined 40k ever since. Um, what, so the question is, what's your favorite case where real life has seeped into Warhammer? And that's from Alex. It's a good question. Is it a question we have an answer for after this much quite high proof whiskey? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> hmm. um, it's kind of the inverse of this, but I really like that. Like when they called things land raiders and land speeders, mm. they were obviously thinking about the concept of the land, <laughs> you know, like the ground that people stand on. Mm. Um, but they decided subsequently, uh, that that was too terrestrial, too much of the real world. Mm. And so instead those are standard template construct patterns created by a man called Mr. Land. Oh yeah. <laughs> which I is, about which is the lot. best reverse, like backing out of the fact that this is obviously a terrestrial thing. Mr. Land. Um, I, I want to see a, a There Will Be Blood style film about Mr. Land and his, uh, <laughs> his <laughs> ambitions and conquests. Um, I think, like, there's so much of this in Warhammer because so much of it is just, a, like, bad Latin, right? Like, yeah, so I think they call it, it's either like, I think they call it high gothic in, right, yeah. in the fiction, which is just, you know, bastardized <laughs> Latin. But isn't that, like, quite themey it's the idea that you've got a very corrupt society that doesn't understand its own past and therefore you know they reclaim a dead language from even longer below. yeah and, and sort of everything everything they bring back from the past to form their That's modern identity point. is corrupted it shouldn't be high gothic it should be like heavily corrupted like mandarin or like heavily mm. corrupted english yes really. yes it should yeah like ferris manis as stupid as that name is his name should be like I know Handus. It's <laughs> <laughs> like Spider-Man villain. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, but I think there's, so there's something very pretentious about the Imperium as well. There is, yeah. And I think that, uh, incompetent pretentiousness is a very good, uh, you know, a very telling feature of the Imperium. Mm. So, you know, resurrecting Latin, but badly is like the most Imperium thing that, that they can yeah. do. I mean, like, the Adeptus Arbites of the police are basically just Judge Dredd. So that's, like, mm. that is a thing that's quasi from real life, as in a different fiction being imported sideways into that is true. Warhammer. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything literally real. I suppose, like, I suppose that's, you know, some of the things they, they got rid of going into AOS, but, like, you know, the Bretonians. Mm. That's, it's, it's just medieval Stuff French people. Arthurian. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, straight up. Yeah. yeah um, there's a lady in the lake, you know, the whole, Fucking shebang, yeah. Yeah, the whole shebang. <laughs> <laughs> Mallory too, the whole shebang. <laughs> uh, good. Uh, yeah, do you have anything else on thoughts on things that have been transferred sideways? Uh, not yet. But there's still time. Okay. 
Next question comes from Harry, who writes, Dear Hubris Bird and Lightning Man, <laughs> if the Spice bird. Girls were transported into the grim darkness of the 41st millennium, yeah. okay, which like chaos guide which the East fall to? Oh, this is <laughs> and which good. one would remain loyal to the God Emperor? Thanks to the great pod, it's excellent to paint too. Please this is a this very question. good question. Please read this question from... Uh, the start again not not from the bird thing but from um, the if the spice question. girls were transported into the grim darkness of the 41st millennium which chaos god would you say would they each fall to and which one would remain loyal to the oh, god emperor such a good question it is a, such a good question Fuck. so i think this it's kind of complicated mm-hmm. because the obvious answers are like sporty to corn mm-hmm. um i think baby to nurgle <laughs> Baby to- the complacency of a baby. <laughs> the entropic sort of. What's the inherently diseased Well, because it's also about the cycle of, cycle of life, right? And, and mm. regrowth. Um, so yeah, the baby is a growth of, sort of <laughs> exactly, growth yeah, from- exactly. Like a kind mm. of ever recurring baby state mm. personified by the god of decay. Um, I think, uh, I think posh is zinch. Slanesh. Maybe, but I think, um, hang on, who are we missing? Posh, baby, sporty, ginger. <laughs> <laughs> so ginger's loyal to the god, god you got emperor. Yeah, ginger is clearly loyal to the god emperor. <laughs> yeah. Um, She's fine. Who are we missing? Scary. Ooh. I think that, scary's corn, right? Yeah, but where does that put sporty? <laughs> where does it put sporty? <laughs> can we put two spice put, girls in the same category? Can we put... Yeah. Christ. What were the... What the fuck were they thinking? Sorry, that was the... That was the what, the spice girls? Yeah. What a weird cultural moment that was yeah anyway was back a, to war i mean it was a, it was a, a weird culture, cultural moment yeah um yeah that kind of pre-crash world of uh hedonistic pop yeah is, is actually uh, so I'll, alien I'll, yeah maybe put this a different way so i think we i think we end up arguing either i think i think i'll probably go with ginger god emperor sporty corn and say that the, um, I think scary remains a kind of, um, <laughs> problematic remnant of that particular <laughs> era of British pop. Yep. Um, and, but the whole apparatus ends up being an engine to create Slanesh in the manner of the fall of the elder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right with that. Definitely. Okay, good. For sure. What a great question. Good job, Harry. <laughs> Next one comes from James who writes, Oh, picture. I've recently Ooh. noted that my penchant for more exotic models, namely putting together a Sisters of Silence army with kickbashes pulled from the Horus Heresy army list that have no models, a few resin bits, Forge World tank with no 40k rules, and genuine attitude of, well, I think this is cool, has led me to an extremely uncomfortable position. I think I'm a Warhammer hipster. <laughs> yes, I brought a narrative-based army to a tournament. Yes, I have an army with ostensibly no rules, waiting on Forge World to do something. Yes, I pull bits of lore from barely updated lexiconum pages to justify why I'm doing things. Oh no! Save me from my quest to be an individual among the rank and file. What's the most Warhammer hipster thing you have done <laughs> as part of this lovely, ho- lovely, that's me, not him, lovely hobby. That's from James, who's James alone on Discord. And a picture of his wonky army, his lovely looking wonky army, uh, from Role Models Rollout 2 is included. And very nice it is indeed. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I love, 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 love the um, Sisters Islanders transport. Yeah, the uh, Forge World one. Big oh, old so suppository tank. Yeah. <laughs> so good beautifully painted there as well i love that that kind of um 
this is a terrible podcast because no one could see this, but uh, there's a beautiful sort of um, dirtied bronze sheen yeah. to uh, the model that uh, here that looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, and very, good very job. Nice. That's good, right. good, good job. Um, I think, I mean, probably the most Warhammer hipster thing I have done is run zinch demons whenever i was running zinch i think the whole your whole zinch sitch has been <laughs> like, a, you know yeah. ha- had hipster overtones to an extent yeah and not through any sort of like you know no no i think that's fair <laughs> um i don't know about um my own hipster tendencies really i think i mean maybe you hipstered yourself when you did iron hands when you wanted to do crimson Fist. i think that's what happened <laughs> i should have just gone with my the heart yeah. I should have just painted some crews of vists. I actually like, I do look up at my, um, I've got my little squad of iron hands. I do look up at them and it's like, oh, quite pleased with the way they're painted. Quite yeah, pleased nice. with, the, with the line, the line work on the, uh, the edge highlighting, which is, you know, a challenge for I just realized my most hipster thing has to be finding the seven stage process of painting red on my thousand suns. Yeah. That's that is really the most unnecessary useful. thing I have ever done. No, but I, I, but I think that was, so the purpose of that was to achieve a cool, yeah. that you're happy with and i don't think it was to make them you know subversively different or mm. make a statement with them i think you just try to get a nice effect mm. maybe not though <laughs> yeah that's reasonable although I, I also didn't want to do the the blood angels red that everyone else was doing so there is that there is that i suppose yeah um oh it's just it's wall-to-wall <laughs> anti-populist decisions for me i'm afraid um trying to think if there's anything you've done, you have a commitment to the Vanguard that is beyond the norm. Yeah. I, I keep trying to make them happen in games for sure. And part of that is because like, just, I think my hunters are some of the best ones are painted and my, um, Vanguard Palladors, who are the chicken riders are some of the best models are painted. Yeah. So I just want to, I just want to run them because they look rad. <laughs> and That's, then, and that is reasonable, <laughs> which is reasonable in this hobby. But yeah. they, they, um, the hunters, I don't think have enough going on to be worthwhile. Hmm. I think the paddles do, but I just don't know. Yeah, I don't think, I think, I don't think you have really fallen into that trap much. I don't think. Uh, Maybe your commitment to the sepulchral guard. Oh, that's probably, that's, that's as close as it gets really. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, no one else is running this. So I'm going to run it relentlessly. It doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work. Uh uh But at least I did what I wanted. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I know that feel. (laughs) Um, our next question comes from, uh, successive 19 for 19 question champion, Pete Fiena from Discord, mm. uh, who writes, hello, Ion Toms and Thurston Sons, which is pretty good. Mm. Um, this month I wonder, do either of you have any big hobby regrets? My main one is getting back into Warhammer Fantasy Battle six months before AOS, leading to rebasing a lot of small plastic rats. But there are other things like color scheme choices that can sometimes leave a hobbyist thinking, if only I'd known. Love the pod, Pete slash Fiena. Um, I think I, in hindsight, regret buying the Dark Imperium corset. Mm. I think that was a sort of an of the moment kind of like, this is the thing. And the more time that passes, the less interested in kind of 40k as a main battle game I become. Mm. And while I don't mind having some space marines around, I did sell my death god to Fee, who wrote <laughs> this question. Yeah. Um, like, and so, like, I feel like of all of the, the, splashy purchases i've made since getting back into the hobby that's the one that i could undo mm. and feel no different yes basically so i swapped my death guard half of the imperium corset with chimp and he gave me his half of the 
AOS second edition corset mm. for Stormcast. So I've doubled up on my Stormcasts. So like ultimately through trading, I think uh, I've gotten value out of the Dark mm. Imperial box. And actually, weirdly, the thing I love most about that is the book. Mm. I still look at the book and that thing is the book fucking is great. beautiful. I don't it's, regret the book. That's true. Um, so the book's like 35 quid. So yeah. Yeah. If yeah. I'd have bought that yeah, much, much less. Yeah. Uh, so I've still got some space movies. I still feel the urge to paint space movies every now and then. Yeah. Who doesn't? Uh, uh, yeah, it's just natural part of the hobby. But yeah, you're right. That is, um, I just think I've not had a good game of eighth edition 40k, like a really good one. It's all been fairly, you know, straightforward stuff with the corset armies, which are not very exciting. But yeah, hmm. that's a good shout. It is a good shout. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think I fully like regret anything. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize you were, you were reaching tentatively for the whiskey. Um, I don't think I fully regret anything else, to be honest. Um, not without getting to the territory of like, do I regret all of this? Well, let's not stay down that barrel. It's gone midnight. <laughs> that is a cork coming out of a Sorry about that. bottle of very strong whiskey, in, in, in case you were wondering, podcast that we're recording. Uh, our next question comes, uh, from, uh, my friend Greg, X-Wing friend Greg, Ooh. who's not written into the podcast before. Hello, Greg. Um, he writes, hi guys. Did you know that goat men are excellent and apparently angry? I knew this when I was small and the new models came out, but I was deep in the clutches of gribbly things from space. This week I was in Games Workshop buying paints for D&D purposes. And would you know it? Those exact same models have now been repackaged with actually good rules and stuff. He's referring to Beasts of Chaos. Ah. Uh. Alas, other than knowing a few people in my local war games community, I know nothing about getting back into the hobby. What would you be recommendation for jumping back in other than blindly planning and buying 2,000 points of angry goats without really understanding the rules and so forth? Obviously, start collecting is a help. But the fact that Beastmen want a herdstone, plus the fact that Beastmen do want a herdstone, I guess I'm asking more to find out what's good and how many goaty boys I need before I can start playing games in earnest. Thanks, Greg. Mm. So I think as we've maybe mentioned already on this podcast, like one of the strengths of AOS is you can play with a relatively small number of models and yeah. get a feel for things. It is a skirmish game. It is a skirmish that game. That is hot. And um I think as long as you are up for like um it depends obviously what you wanna play. Like if you wanna win tournaments, that is a very different thing to do you want to throw some goats at your friend mm. in a fun way? And I'm very much a proponent of because uh, I, I, I know the questioner, so there's a sort of element of like trying to like into it attitude here like don't don't embark on your first thousand to two thousand points of goats expecting x-wing levels of kind of competitive finesse expect a degree of war game kind of just stuff happen mm. maybe just stuff happen and that's fine um but they are pretty competitive i think they're pretty good i, I would say um start collecting box although already mentioned is a very good place to start because it will give you everything for basically about a 500 point army and skirmish easily mm. very much easily skirmish uh, plenty even um i'd say like building towards the kind of thousand points that we've been describing where you have maybe one i know that the start collecting uh beast box comes with a gorgon or saigon saigor uh which are definitely a bear moth but they fit into the you can have a bear moth if it isn't a hero yeah. category of good thousand point games mm. um i'd say like start collecting plus a few boxes of the stuff you genuinely like and are excited to paint, which is the mm. most important thing. Yeah. If you have like a nicely rounded thousand point army that looks like an army, um, and you can take to a bunch of games in different contexts, I will give you a game. Like that's a fun place to start. 
basically. Mm. And then, um, you know, in terms of what's actually good, I don't know. I really don't think iOS is about that. Like, I think it's about fluctuates so quickly. Yeah. And the, uh, the time and money investment involved in getting an army together means that we've said this over and over again, but just it, unless you're super, super into the competitive scene, just don't chase it. Cause at the moment it's sort of a cane, but two months time it might not be like yeah. it, it's that quick. Like it really could change on an FAQ or a points rebalance. Like, it, it, you know, and the investment of time, like if you love goats, just embrace that. Just go goats. <laughs> yeah. Just go all in on the goats. And, um, and they're not bad though. Like they seem, they're, they seem good. Yeah. And like, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's the definition of very much the journey, not the destination. So mm. it's like, um, I would say, and I appreciate this advice has been extremely vague. I would say buying the book is not a bad place to start. Mm. It's like a 25 quid outlay, which is not insignificant. But it allows you to read through and just sort of try and pass what you find interesting about the rules that are there. Hmm. And there will inevitably be, with a lack of experience at the game, combos that you miss and kind of mad ally potential that you may be not paying attention to. And there are forums and things you can read if that's what you care about. But broadly speaking, it will give you, you know, obviously the rules are available for free, but it, it'll give you the kind of holistic view of like, actually... This is my first rung on the ladder. I want to maximize this particular rule, mm. particularly with Beastmen, where there are multiple different sub armies within Beastmen, like Thunderscorn and Brayherd. And so you might, that might be the first interesting place to start is identify which of those do you find most interesting from a rules point of view. Yeah. And then mock up, do the window shopping, which is the most fun part of any Warhammer army. Oh, yeah. Like mock up that first thousand points. Mm. Does it make sense? Does it make sense financially? Does it make sense in terms of what you're actually interested in painting? If it doesn't start again. And just repeat that process until you have a kind of roadmap to that first thousand yeah, points. And I right. think that's it, basically. Yeah, for sure. Then you got it. Cool. The next question comes from Andrew, who writes, Hello, plastic people. The teaser for Wrath and Rapture got me wondering what hobby-related activities you've done that would please the Chaos Gods. Have you ever had an exacto knife slip? That was for corn, unless it got infected, in which case you're Nurgle now. Ever converted a mini, all part of Zinch's plan. But what about sensations that would get Slanesh all hot and bothered? Which is a kind of weird avenue to explore. Um, am I the only one to find peeling dried paint off the lids of Citadel pots immensely satisfying? Oh, no, I is Nolan oil secretly delicious? Exactly how long have you spent looking at Tom's horse's ass? Keep up the excellent podding. It's the reason I go into, got into the hobby and I'm having a blast. That's oh, Andrew, who's awesome. fluid druid from Discord. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's right. Um, Hmm. I've never drawn blood through hobby. Um, not yet. No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Like, oh, I didn't Tom mean that said immediately a, a before threat. That, that sounded a lot like a threat, Tom. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, um, no, regarding myself, I've not drawn blood yet. Uh, I'm not a big conversion. I feel always too, uh, too nervous to chop mm. into my models, you know. I suck at it as well. Um, hmm. Let's think. I think I've expressed a lot of excess generally through simply sort of expenditure and time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's well, we both a have. bit of a cop we both out. Have. Yeah. yeah. I got quite cold at the conservatory one time while painting got a cold. Does that, that count as worshipping Nurgle? got ill. Yeah, a little bit. Do you want me? Excess, I don't know. It's all kind of excess. It feels. <laughs> isn't it at the end of the day uh, yeah. you know yeah um but really when <laughs> you could be doing almost anything else <laughs> yeah. but I, that, that's kind of part the fun of it for me is how kind of 
so I'm, I'm painting this meticulously molded, beautiful little piece of art and trying to make it okay. And I'm going to spend like three or four hours here doing it while listening to podcasts. I know there's, there's a lot of excess, excess involved in that. Yeah. Weirdly, that scene. I think maybe though, I because think. I find like miniatures painting and hobby stuff to genuinely be a, like a mindfulness thing that I found very helpful in terms yeah. of, you know, it is a thing I do to calm myself down. I've definitely enjoyed that. It does that play well. against the chaos gods somewhat by its nature. Yeah. It's, it's anti chaos in a way, isn't it? Yeah. It's pure order. I'm afraid. Yeah, it's about, yes, it is about adding order to this pile of things you've bought. Yeah. It's about destroying chaos, if anything. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, unless you are the kind of person who doesn't paint anything ever and, and just sort of plays with bases, not models. In which case, which you, case. you are a Korgarath. <laughs> as far You're as the record said. Pure chaos monster. <laughs> yeah. And by which I mean, enjoy your hobby however you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, a next question comes from Kingsley, who writes, Hi, Chris and Tom. I've been alternating between reading Horace Heresy books and classic literature that I've missed. Last month, I got into the accidental pairing of Fulgrim and The Picture of Dorian Gray, both clearly <laughs> hedonistic favourites of Slanesh. <laughs> what do you think the other Warhammer deities are reading? Cheers, Kingsley. Oh. I think Korn is reading The Tiger That Came to Tea. <laughs> <laughs> or any other children's book about an animal powered by pure id. <laughs> like Winnie the Pooh. No, um, probably wrote it yeah exactly <laughs> Winnie the Pooh like you can't read very well I think Winnie so, the, I think Winnie the Pooh is a slanesh uh, uh, you know there's a lot of excess in Winnie the Pooh I suppose it's just pure just getting your paw into a pot full of just the sweetest he's stuck in the honey. most unctuous you know <laughs> physically <Unctuous> rewarding <laughs> Uh, that, but it's not the thousand acre some way a kind of prefiguring of the garden Winnie of Nurgle. the Pooh <laughs> is pure slanesh that's okay. what I'm saying on this podcast yeah. that hedonistic fucking honey uh, bear absolutely <laughs> and um <laughs> Christopher Robin is the full grim move uh Tigger is corn just the kind uh, of hang on we're not mapping thousand acre wood no this either. is a different question like different Eeyore question. is Nurgle <laughs> <laughs> I think slow miserable but ultimately wins Nurgle's and, um, more jolly than Eeyore that's the trouble that's true yeah Rue is Seench I don't think <laughs> Who you take her as inch? Yeah, Christopher Robin is the God Emperor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is the anathema. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that is the plot, as far as I can tell, of the most recent Christopher Robin film. <laughs> um, I've not seen it. Uh, uh, let's think. We've gotten wildly off track um, yeah, what's already. The uh, it was books that the different gods read. Oh. Hmm. Uh, let me think. I think, well, Nagash possibly just reads white wolf source books over and over again <laughs> just for <laughs> vampire the masquerade mate just for werewolf. just for inspiration yeah. just for dress sense um big hats bigger plans um hmm i think uh, i feel like sigmar reads a lot of famous wife <laughs> i think there's a sort of you know there's or, always a dog for one thing there, there's a kind of or just the world there's a little sense of moral righteousness uh, you know underlying the yeah you vanquish some there. smugglers yeah, you've actually, yeah. Um, you sent some doggos. Yeah, there's always a dog, there's always to a die. there's always ginger beer. Yeah, there's always ginger beer. Um, so yeah, I feel like there's something kind of righteous about that. Um, Enid Blyton always feels kind of moralistic to me, like, mm. there's a kind of certainty to the world. Zinch reads Peter Rabbit. Rabbit. Like, okay. Like, she, yeah, yeah, full on Beatrix Potter. Because mm. it really is about like how the best laid plans of men come fatefully awry mm. thanks to the ambitions of creeping forces beyond man's control. Okay. Like, you yeah. know, the animals in the garden. Like, Farmer McGregor's got some ambition. 
for what he would like to achieve with his with life. vegetables. But he's fucked. And he's, he's fucked from the beginning in a kind of cosmic sense. Yeah. Because of the machinations of this rabbit. And basically they're all they're always going to get his vegetables they are yeah in the end as the, the chaos gods <laughs> like, as the chaos gods do they're always going to get your vegetables the chaos gods are always going to get your vegetables that's what's going to happen um, just got to get used to that um yeah uh, uh we've basically just gone fully on to children's literature here rather than yeah again we, we're answering a different question yeah to the um, one that was asked um because i mean there's too many books broad, broadly and i mean that in, I mean, in a very literal sense no um yeah uh, let's think. So hang on, have we answered all of them? Um, I don't think we've done, have we done Slanesh properly? Uh, it was Winnie the Pooh. Oh yeah, it was. Corn is, I, I stick by that. <laughs> yeah, Corn, I, I'm sticking by Tiger came to Steve Corn. Yep. Nurgle, hmm. What is the children's book that really expresses decay? Uh, and the end of things. Uh, but the inevitable regrowth and, and rebirth of things. There are so many. Chronicles of Narnia? Sorry. <laughs> Chronicles of Narnia? No. There's a finality to that. Yeah, it's also, I don't know. It is also, it's pretty explicit which God reads those books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, hmm. Let's think. There aren't very many children's books that, so, oh, no, there's gotta be some real doll here, surely. Oh, the twits. Yeah. Would be a good doll. So, Nurgle's sense of mischief maps very well onto the twits. Mm. But there's nothing about the twits that actually taps into How about Stick Nurgle's. of the Dump as a kind of, <laughs> okay, a kind yeah, of sure. demon prince of Nurgle? <laughs> yeah, maybe that was like a, a demon link. Yeah, exactly. Making windows out of jam jars. Yeah. Pissing on himself. <laughs> <laughs> it's another fine day in the garden yeah, of Nurgle. That's, that's Nurgle. Good. I think we've, we've, we've cracked that one. Good. John writes, Dear Skull, Chrissa, Brass, and Tomple Guard Blue. It's very good. Good color. I provided two questions. I'm going to read one of them, which is this. Mixing it up from the Primark questions, which Age of Sigmar god matches the characters from Friends? <laughs> Nagash is clearly Ross. <laughs> because uh... nobody likes him. Which is very true. Yeah, okay. Keep up the good miniaturing John, who's Wham Badger from Twitter and, and Discord, etc. Um... <laughs> Ross is kind of a gash actually. <laughs> now I thought about that for a minute. Heavily concerned with skeletons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, quite a fragile, sensitive ego as well. That I know, think Rachel is Sigmar. The Rachel is Sigmar? Nagash is secretly in love with him. Mm. Um, mm. And kind of like just the kind of uh, excellent hair. Mm. This is also true of Sigmar. He does have excellent hair. <laughs> um, he's, he's got excellent straighteners. Yeah. Um and uh yeah that's it that's all i've got the um i think joey is gorkamorka <laughs> pure id pure id <laughs> um, uh yeah that makes sense uh i think uh monica phoebe is a lariel yeah okay yeah i can i can buy that monica is like order but too much right marathi like, is she mm, maybe Malarian? That's too chaotic. Like, hmm. Tec- she would be Tyrion, Teclis, Teclis. Maybe Teclis. Teclis is more like it. I think yeah. she she would control her minions. I think and, and shape them in in the image that she wanted. Teclis then to make them to make them correct and proper and in and the right she would place. abandon the first generation. <laughs> yeah, spoiled millions she to the bottom of the ocean. Drop them <laughs> in moments. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Monica's Teclis. That's Teclis. Good. Okay. Phoebe's Alariel. Uh, I think. Hmm. Chandler. Who's the Chandler Bing of Chaos? Of, the of, kind of, of like, my gods? Mischief God, I suppose. Of, you know, just 
constant bants, just endless constant kind of going. I don't bants. give a shit bants. Yeah, you know, there isn't. Doesn't it really ever of, care we've about. We've stuck anything. within the traditional like non-chaos pantheon for this, mm. and I don't think I don't think Chandler maps onto any of the chaos pantheon. No, um, it's too shallow. It's too shallow. Um, yeah, that's kind of weird. Hmm. Like he's almost like um. I don't know. He's, actually, the Harlequins have more going for them than this 40k thing, anyway. But like, yeah, even even they are like they they've they have deep cultural reasons for doing what they're doing. Yeah, and Chandler has literally no like. <laughs> does they? Yeah, who the hell the is he? There's no, there's no like. Who's the god that's just sort of there? <laughs> like, but just quipping, just kind of like trying to be liked. He, he he wouldn't be a god. He'd be someone like one of the von Karsteins from. Yeah. He would be like a kind of joker on the fringes trying to survive. Mm. Uh, so he would be probably like Manfred or someone. Not, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, he wouldn't be a god. Mm. They don't all have to be gods. No, but that was the premise of the question. But let's relegate Chandler. Like, I'm, I'm thinking, saying. I was just trying to figure out if there's any of the like dwarven gods that fit this, like Grungni or Grimnir. Like. Too proud. Too proud. They've yeah, also got, they Grungny, stand for things. Grungny's right? sort of like shamed and quietly comf- competent, which doesn't yeah. quite fit. Yeah. And the other one is exploded into a billion pieces. He's exploded while fighting a big salamander. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, Chandler would never do. <laughs> um, the thing is like Chandler is like, no, but, I've just fucking figured it out. Oh. Grungny is Gunther. Oh. From, from the coffee shop. I don't even know who that is. You know, the guy who runs the coffee shop. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, that's Grungny. Well, the angry manager, man. Yeah. Okay, that's I Grungny. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, so yeah, so you're right, there is no Chandler in this, really. Just Chandler's too, like, Chandler can't be mapped onto a god because he doesn't stand for anything. <laughs> Unlike the others. This is, which have some uh, sort of primordial, like, something going on. Primeval power, yeah. yeah. Um, get your shit together, Chandler. Yeah, come on, Chandler. Come um, on. Like, is there even, like, a demigod that fits that? Uh, it's because he's ineffectual. He doesn't affect anything. God's got to affect stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's the trouble. He's always there on the sidelines, quipping about the things that happen and never affecting them. Fuck Chandler. Could he, <laughs> could he map on to like... I'm just thinking, because what, what is Char- Chandler's defining characteristics other than all of that? It's like, what kind of like moniker? Hmm. So who likes Teclis? <laughs> uh, no one likes Teclis. Marathi does. A bit. No, she likes Tyrion. Yeah. Mm. But te- yeah. Teclis is, is one of the biggest fuck ups in the whole Warhammer universe because particularly in the end times. Yeah. That's true. Extremely ill judged, uh, spell, spells and maneuvers and kind of, yeah. you know, attempts to it solve. It is all fucking Teclis's fault. Yeah. But maybe yeah, ultimately it's, it's all a lot of, we know, could, I think maybe if we had to map them all, we could make Chandler Teclis and make Monica Malerian, like mm. Malekith. <laughs> That's a, that's such a squeeze. It is a squeeze. It's more of a squeeze than the other one. I, think well, to... I think the interesting thing we've exposed is that some of the cast, some of the friends' characters are ripe for godhood. I think Chandler some... is like fucking Thankwall. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like Queek or some, one of the kind of like Skaven characters that doesn't really achieve much. Yeah. I, I always credited him with the Horned Rat, but the Horned Rat is far too competent for Chandler to actually yeah. occupy that. But so, <laughs> but I think there's, there are two tiers of friends' characters. And some of them are God-worthy, and Chandler is not. <laughs> Those are the two tiers. Um, I think this might be the the most vitriol I ever heard you express for anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the character of Chandler. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think I, w- I watched it again about six months ago, and 
man, that show has not aged well. No, it hasn't at all. It really has not aged well. But, oh well. But anyway, thank you for the question. Our final question comes uh, from Dines Tom, who writes, Dear Curse and Tome, prompted by a recent discussion, please describe the Space Marine Legions. This is complicated and we might not be able to do it, but I wanted to read it. As stages and or elements of childhood from the perspective of their Primarch dad. Oh my God. And I just wanted to congratulate you on finding this kind of crazy, like, meta Primarch question. Yeah. Like, we can map them onto Spice Girls all day long. (laughs) That we kind of can't. (laughs) Like, so I'm taking this as like, Space Wolves are like terrible twos. Right. Oh, I see. Right. Like, Thousand Suns are like, sort of bookish mid-teens oh we should point out that neither of, of us are dads as far as we know no uh, and but we've all been children but <laughs> even then i think like until you've seen it from the other side the phases perhaps might not be terribly apparent yeah that's true but we can try yeah i think i think i think dark angels i think well i think it's really easy to map dark angel thousand suns onto a particular phase of adolescence mm. right mm. um i think the kind of crafty legions like Iron Hands, um, Iron Warriors map onto that kind of creative, but very determined phase of late childhood where you're like, I'm going to build some Lego now. Mm. And it's all I know. I'm just building this. Mm. Um, I think, uh, Blood Angels, very emotional. Mm. Babies. D- <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Are babies very emotional? That's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> they certainly express something like wailing constantly. Well, they express urges, the, the things they want, but I don't, I think emotion is, a I think, I hard think the space wolves are toddlers, to like space wolves. Yeah. Toddlers. Yeah. So yeah. Toddlers. I want this. I will go get this. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, I, I think blood angels shifts way up into like teens, mid teens, probably like, yeah, maybe, they, maybe you're in that bracket as well. So does like, um, so do Raven Guard and Night Legion. All the emo ones, really. Yeah. Yeah, all the emo ones kind of map really cleanly onto... Yeah, like, like, 40 I feel like... I feel like... 17, um, whatever. I feel like uh, Ultramarines map onto early sort of... Um, like, early teens, like 12, 13, when you've sort of... You're the... You know... Like, Ultramarines, no, even younger than that. Ultramarines map clearly onto about being about 11 mm. and being the oldest kids in primary school mm. where you can boss around the smaller children, but right before you journey into real school where you're now the smallest, shittest child again. Yeah. That's where Ultramarines fit. Interesting. Um, White Scars are just that kid that wants to ride around in circles in a BMX all day. Look, which is a, a strange that urge. that can add for any number of years. Like, oh, yeah, is. I've enjoyed the urge. Yeah. I don't know about Ultramarines. I don't think that Ultramarines map onto a childhood stage unless, uh, uh, apart from in the most authoritarian environment mm. that you exist in. I don't know. There is a, there is like a teacher's pet form of child. There is a type of person who like, there are people who just, um, just really happy to just be good at following instructions. And that's certainly the Ultramarine type. But I don't know, like, if you can attribute that to any particular age. Like, that could happen at any time. You could become an Ultramarine at any time. I do, I don't know. I do, I do associate it with, like, kids that haven't quite experienced the, the full kind of terrors of puberty yet, but mm. believe themselves to be good. Like, I think that's why I'm identifying that kind of age 11, 12 kind of thing quite so specifically. So they'd, they'd wish to be Gryffindor. 
In, yeah, gri- you, like natural Gryffindors. You know, natural Gryffindors. So they'd watch Harry Potter and they'd, they'd have a dream and in the dream they'd become Gryffindor and then... Yeah. That's, that's, that's the Ultramarine gets there, yeah. Cool. I think... Um, I like Imperial Fist are just full on weirdos. <laughs> like, I'm going to defend this treehouse <laughs> to the death. <laughs> that's like the neighbor kid that builds like a big sandcastle in his back garden and will fight any it's animal that comes close about to it. it. Yeah, 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 exactly. People who, uh, yeah, there you see a lot of very, very intense youngsters, but Emperor's children get violin lessons from a very early age. Mm, but I, I think like. They're very pushy parents, I suspect. That, that's the thing. So I think there's almost an ultramarine aspect to that. So yeah, it's close. yeah there's definitely an archetype of, uh, people who, you know, parents get them learning instruments very extremely early age and they learn and learn and learn and become amazing. Uh, but that's just like, they have to sacrifice so much. I to feel do like, it. I feel like, yeah, I think the difference there is, I think ultramarines are sort of, um, encouraged to do lots of activities over the summer, like Cub Scouts and stuff like that, but ultimately go to school and become head prefect. Mm. Whereas I think Emperor's children are homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a good analogy. Like, like this. Yeah. Like this. Um, and, yes. um, and <laughs> <laughs> have some str- like suddenly they'll be completely normal for 90% of the conversation. They emerge into secondary school perhaps, but with fabulous hair. And, um, they'll, they'll be completely, they'll fit in 90% of the time, but 10% of the time they'll be like, not at all. What? Say, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, what yeah. do you want to do with your armor? <laughs> yeah. Purple and gold? What kind of children are the Death Guard? What, the Special Forces children who are <laughs> no, no, merged I mean, no, I mean, super study Nurgle, groups? Future Nurgle, not Death Watch, Death Guard. Oh, Death Guard, sorry. Yeah, no, um, I think there are any Death Watch children <laughs> where you take one child from every different... No, that's the Breakfast Club. That'd be so the good. Breakfast yeah, Club yeah, is the yeah, Death yeah. Watch of teenagers. Yeah, it is, that's yeah. The, <laughs> that is absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, um, really, no, um, really true. No, I mean the Death Guard. Oh, the so. Death Guard. I, are they those like very, very durable toddlers? Like, that could sort of just, you know, kind of, like, bully their way through any given sandpit. No, I mean, I'd, I'd expect the Death Guard to be infected with something at all times. Yeah, and, the and there are children, children like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And there are children who always have something, but never don't die. They just keep on going. And so there, there are, like, little snotty Death Guard. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. It's just, a, yeah, that is an archetype. Are we missing any legions? I think we've, I think we've done... I mean, enough. That's <laughs> what I would say. I think we've, I think we've done more than we've enough. We've probably insulted a lot of children. It's 20 past one in the morning, Tom. I know. We podcasted for a long time. Yeah, we did this on a weeknight, which is just we don't normally do. Yeah. And, uh, also he drank some whiskey. So. Yeah. Good whiskey so, though. Yeah. Thanks. It's delicious. The nation of Wales. Um, if you'd like to send us a question for future nonsense that we do, you can do so by emailing us at miniatures at com. And again, if you're interested in attending our event in November, uh, your last sentence to do so involves emailing us at events at com. Please do email that address. I appreciate you might get replies from a different address, but that is how we keep track of the emails. Mm-hmm. So if you don't send it to that, we probably won't notice. Sorry. Um, if you would like to uh, follow Miniatures Monthly on Twitter, you can do so at Miniatures Monthly. Mm. Oh, sorry. No, you don't. Don't do that. It's Minis Monthly. <laughs> That's the correct address. I've said it now. And thanks as ever to our Patreon backers who in supporting the main Crit and Grow podcast, support this and other spin-offs. Tom, how can people find you online, online on the web? The best place is on Instagram, and I'm on there as Ludo Paints Minis, and Ludo is spent, spelt, spent, spent. spelt, 
We are L- both spent. Yeah. <laughs> L-U-D-O. Paints minis. And I can be found on uh, Instagram at Exit Warp, which is E-X-I-T-W-A-R-P. Thanks for listening to this uh, longer than expected (laughs) (laughs) Megapod. And see you next month. See you next month.